Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, getting a root shell by holding down the enter key, compromising a Linux box with an NES, and poison tap. The little hacking box that could. Plus your great questions, a pop and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 293 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as we go on. Oh, ScaleEngine. Well, thank you for asking. All of the downloads and our live stream are powered by ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello. I'm glad to see you back. How was your travels back from BSD? Everything go okay? Very good, yeah. Good, good. Uh, well, last I saw you, you were, uh, you were uh, in uh, Berkeley, California, and maybe we'll chat a little bit yes. about that later on in the show. Uh, sure. But today we just have a show full of really great Linux news. Lots of uh, things that just are not broken, Terrible not exploited. <laughs> oh no, no, no! <laughs> yeah, we have a lot to I, get I into. I didn't, I didn't, you know, do this on purpose. No, I it know. was just the the, the top things in the news. The news is the news. It is. Yep. It is. Maybe the news found out that uh, I was down at Meet BSD, and so it's punishing me for going to a BSD event. So should we start with CVE 2016 44? 84, my favorite. Sure. <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's start with that. <laughs> it rolls okay, off the so, tongue. Uh, so this is a vulnerability in the crypt setup. Uh, so crypt setup is a tool that uh, handles booting your Lux encrypted uh, disk. So if you install Ubuntu with the default uh, and check the little option to encrypt your disk in their default installer setup, uh, it sets this up for you. Right. And it turns out there, there's, there's a little bug. Oh, a bug. Yeah, so a vulnerability encrypt setup, uh, concretely in the scripts that unlock the system partition when the partition is uh, encrypted using Lux. Uh, the disclosure of this vulnerability uh, was presented as part of their talk, Abusing Lux to Hack the System, oh, yeah. at DeepSec 2016 in uh, Vienna, Austria. So this vulnerability allows an attacker to obtain init RAMFS shell on the affected system. The vulnerability is very reliable because it doesn't depend on system specifics or configuration. Uh, the attacker can then copy, modify, or destroy the hard drive, as well as set up a network to exfiltrate data. Uh, this vulnerability is especially serious in environments like libraries, ATMs, airport machines, labs, etc., where the whole boot process is protected, say with uh, password in the BIOS and Grub or whatever, uh, and you only have a keyboard and mouse, where you would expect this would mitigate most of the vulnerabilities, but it doesn't. Mm. Uh, also, note that in cloud environments, it is also possible to remotely exploit this vulnerability uh, without having to have, you know, physical access. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, uh, if you just think of that, you know, uh, DigitalOcean HTML5 console you get, right? That's equivalent to physical access. So, right. uh, two-factor authentication. Get on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two-factor all the things, I guess. Yeah, yeah all the yeah, things. Especially anything that gives you console access to a server. Although we've been saying that for years now, and just <clears throat> not materializing yeah. as much as, or as fast as it could. It's materializing, right. but... Uh, but anyway, they go on to say, um, if you use uh, Debian or Ubuntu, and probably almost all derived distributions from that, uh, they're vulnerable. Uh, although they haven't tested every one of them, but Debian and, and Ubuntu themselves are definitely vulnerable to this. Mm. Uh, and... 
of course, it only is a vulnerability if you have an encrypted system partition, uh, because you know the vulnerability lives in the in the bit that actually mounts that encrypted system partition. So if you don't encrypt your disk, you might actually be safer at this point. Uh, now, you know, while it allows the person to get root access on the machine, and uh, you know, they still can't decrypt the the disk without your password. But you know, they could set up the network and copy all your encrypted data off and try to brute force it offline. Although it might take years and uh, of effort to do that, uh, to actually do the cracking. Uh, they have an update that they posted since they originally posted that. Uh, they have found that systems that use uh, Dracut or whatever it's supposed to be called, uh, which is like you know your your Red Hat Enterprise Linux, your CentOS, your Fedora, etc., uh, they're also vulnerable. Hmm. Uh, they tested that on Fedora 24 and found that they could hmm. they could okay. get the same thing. Hmm. So, so multi-distro. Yeah, basically across all the major distros you might expect to find on a desktop. Mm -hmm. uh, during the installation of Ubuntu, one of the first steps is to prepare the target uh, partition, which you know make partitions if needed, format them, etc. Mm -hmm. At this stage, the user is asked if they want to encrypt the new uh, LXK Ubuntu installation for security. Nowadays, there's very little performance penalty working uh, with an encrypted disk, and it is an effective solution to protect your data when the computer is not running. So it's kind of advisable to use this feature, uh, except for when they make mistakes like this. It's also really nice on a laptop that you know maybe you have work data on or something like that. You want to have that, uh, that data protected. And if you're moving a machine between home and work, even if it's your personal files, I also know that uh, uh, Noah uses this feature to encrypt uh, external storage as well. Uh, although the, the vulnerability here is, is in the part in, that in, mounts yeah, the, yeah. for when your, your root file system is encrypted. Yeah, well. yeah. Uh, an attacker with access to the console of the computer and with the ability to reboot the computer can launch a shell with root permissions uh, when he or she is prompted for the password to unlock the system partition. The shell is executed in the initRD environment. Uh, obviously, the system partition is encrypted and it is not possible to decrypt it as far as we know. Uh, but other partitions may not be encrypted and uh, therefore accessible. Uh, just to mention some possible exploitation strategies for this. The first is elevation of privilege. Since the boot partition is typically not encrypted, right, the one that the actual slash boot, uh, from this uh, initRD where you don't have access to the root file system, but you do have access to the boot file system, you could use it to, say, set up the network, download uh, your nasty binary, Install it in the slash boot partition and make it set UID root because you're you have this root shell right in the initRD, and so then later when you reboot the system and and the uh, or, you know the rightful person enters the password and boots the system, your regular user access on the system now has the ability to go find this binary you dropped there and run it and it set UID root and hmm. then you know you have a shell you can do whatever <laughs> you want uh, yeah anything you want. If the boot is not secured, you could also just say replace the kernel or init RD image with ones with, say, a rootkit in them. Yep. That's exactly uh, what I was thinking. Or information disclosure. It's possible to access all the disks. Although the system partition is encrypted, it could still be copied to an external device or over the network where it could later be brute forced. Obviously, it is possible to access any non-encrypted information on all the other devices as well. So you can copy most of the data off the machine. Um... And then the denial of service is just because it's encrypted doesn't mean you can't overwrite it with zeros. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. Right. So you could just, you know, 
access this, overwrite the whole machine with zeros, and then leave, right? Like now, if you imagine doing this to say cloud images, uh, you know, somebody's droplet, that would be really bad. <laughs> you know, hopefully they have a snapshot, right? <laughs> Although if you're uh, have broken into their account such that they have uh, console access, then you could delete snapshots as well. Anyway, it says the fault is caused by the incorrect handling of the password check, uh, which is a shell script uh, that runs from scripts uh, local top crypt root. Uh, when the user exceeds the maximum number of password tries, which by default is three, then the boot sequence continues normally. Uh, when it can't mount the root file system because you failed, it actually retries 30 times. Because at this point, the retry, the retry 30 times thing is happening because it doesn't know that the problem is you failed to enter the password correctly. It thinks, you know, I tried to read the disk and there was a failure. So I'm just going to try again. Yeah. Maybe it's still times. spinning up. Maybe it's a slow. Yeah, maybe yeah. the drive isn't powered up all the way or whatever. Uh, and so it, even though it's intended that you only get three tries at the password, you get three tries plus 30 more tries of three tries, meaning you actually get 93 tries at the password before the machine stops. Uh, but unlike what it's supposed to do, where the machine say stops after 93 tries, what it does is pop a shell <laughs> because at this point it's, it's, you know, well, I'll explain it in a minute, but anyway, hmm. uh, the fault is caused by incorrect handling of the password check, right? Uh, the calling script, which is slash script slash local, uh, handles the errors. If it was caused by a slow device that needs more time to warm up, the boot uh, script then tries to recover and mount the failing device in the function local device setup, which I don't know if it's the notes or the actual script where that's where device is spelled wrong. <laughs> anyway, it tries the local device setup thing multiple times, up to 30 times on an x86, and for one reason or another, up to 150 times on a power PC. So the same exploit will work on a power PC, but you'll have to try uh, five times harder. <laughs> So every time uh, the top-level script tries to mount the encrypted partition uh, from line 99 of the script local, uh, the user is allowed three more tries at the Lux password, giving you a total of this 93 tries on x86. Um, but the real problem happens when the maximum number of uh, trials for the transient hardware fault is reached. So once you've done the 30 tries on your x86, at line 114 in the function local device setup, uh, in this case, the top-level script is not aware that the root cause of this fault is you failing to enter the password, and it thinks it's just the hard drive's not working. So it drops you into a BusyBox shell. Uh, and you can see line 124, the panic function tries to insert additional drivers, and then it runs BusyBox. So now you have a shell with all the functionality of BusyBox on this machine running as root, even though you don't know the password. <laughs> Damn it. So to exploit this flaw, uh, what you got to do is you sit down at somebody's computer with Lux Encrypt or whatever, and you power it up, and when it gives you the password prompt, you just press enter and hold the enter down. Uh, and then what? after approximately 70 seconds, you'll have uh, held enter through 93 password prompts and a shell. So are you telling me the only thing people had to do to discover this was hold down the enter key? Yes. Uh, my business partner commented... Was this discovered by somebody's cat? <laughs> I mean, you this is sort of like well, one of the premier the, disk encryption um, yeah. methodologies for the Linux desktop. Well, and, and there's not actually anything wrong with the disk encryption. No, it's, it's the, the implementation. Shell script right. And the yeah. yeah. 
Um, uh, I, here's my here's my concern: is uh, this kind of test this kind of testing isn't happening at the most basic level? Then, well, yeah. So, like, how how did nobody try entering the wrong password three times and notice that it asks you? You know, I, I'm I'm guessing nobody would have discovered that it took ninety three. That you know, okay. I wouldn't have sat there kept trying yeah, and counting until I get to ninety three. Unless you're but crazy I person. Notice when it let me try number four. Right, and I would like, you know, and, and I and I want to I want to double down on that because if, if especially the developers who designed the thing, right, they know how many times it should be prompting. They should know. Yes, it's it's one of the you know I, I built the similar thing for FreeBSD to do this without having to have an unencrypted slash boot to have everything be encrypted to mm-hmm. kind of deal with that. You know, you could set a, a set UID binary in the unencrypted part, um, and. You know, that was one of the things I tested was make sure I only get the number of password prompts I'm supposed to. Yeah. Yeah, that seems seems super obvious. In, in mine, when, when you exceed the limit, it enters an infinite loop and will just not let your computer do anything and you have to manually reboot. Damn. <laughs> well, it's, it's, the, well, it's the only thing you can do. There's there's not, there's, there's not a lot of options about so that. so early in the boot, there's yeah. not much else you can do. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, on the... Uh, page where the developer that found this posted this stuff they have a couple of different uh, approaches to fix it um they have one patch that just uh after you hit the limit it just enters a uh while true sleep 100 loop after saying the maximum tries exceeded please reboot mm. or they have a different workaround where once you um hit the maximum number of tries then it will sleep for five seconds and then reboot off, uh, for you. And they made it controllable with a, a grub command line. Now that uh, makes sense. Setting. So yeah. that that makes sense. That seems pretty straightforward. So that's essentially the fix. Yeah, is is either after you exceed the limit, stop or yeah. reboot. Uh, does he say in here if he's notified the projects, or is this sort of the notification? This appears to be the notification. Right. Oh, he also explains why he did that. Uh, okay. You know, okay. It's, it's like, you know, why is this a zero day or whatever? Because uh, he's had trouble with. Uh, so you think, so do you think if I so, went over to Noah, assuming Noah used the Ubuntu install, oh, he's not using Ubuntu anymore. But assuming he was using yeah, Ubuntu, I could walk and he did, he used the installer option to encrypt his uh, root partition. I could walk over there and hit, I could just hold down enter for 70 seconds and it would. Yeah. And we give you a shell. It's just amazing. You know, you, not that many commands in it, but it's BusyBox, so it actually yeah. has a decent subset. If I got that far, uh, though, I've I've rescued my way out of crash servers for that from that far before. I mean, like that's yeah. Uh, now, now you know the data he wants encrypted is still encrypted, but you could erase it, or you could take you my know, copy of it. Yep, uh, and try to brute force it offline. Say using. Uh, a lot of computers in the cloud that you yeah. bought with stolen credit cards or whatever. If I wasn't ninety-five percent sure, it's just pictures of him naked. It might be worth it, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, in particular, so they they kind of discuss a bit about how this kind of thing happens. Saying, in general, the GNU Linux uh, ecosystem, including the kernel, system apps, distros, etc., has been designed by developers for developers. Therefore, in the case of a fault, the recovery action is very developer friendly, which is very convenient while developers. Uh, or, or whether they're developing it or they're in a controlled, you know, environment. In a, in a controlled environment like your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> but when Linux is used in more hostile environments, uh, this helpful but naive recovery service uh, should not be the default option. Right? If this is a kiosk at the airport or if this is you know something you're embedding in a device and putting elsewhere or a bunch of the other things, 
uh, popping a shell is probably not the thing you want it to do uh, when you fail to mount the root partition. Right? <laughs> I say, uh, UEFI and Grub contain two complete and very powerful shell facilities. The initRD system has the very powerful BusyBox with a, you know complete access to the network. So, you know, BusyBox and, and, and that is not necessarily the only ways to do some things you know some of this you could probably even just do from the the enhanced grub shell or with the uefi shell hmm. right that's why secure boot is the thing mm-hmm. uh, they say uh you know maybe all this just in case functionality should be removed or seriously reconsidered for the sake of security instead of you know if your machine can't boot then you know solve the problem and try again not pop a shell yeah, and if all else fails, just grab the hard drive and run. Just take the drive and go. <laughs> well, yeah, they even... Uh, is it this one or the... Yeah, so this one, they, they break down the levels of physical access you can have, uh, starting from... I'll, I'll do it in backwards to start with. The, so the most basic one is you have limited access to a keyboard or other simple user input, like, say, a smart doorbell. Okay. Yeah, you have, like, two buttons, and that's all you got to work with. Okay. But the physical access. Uh, then you have physical access to a, a keyboard and mouse or touchpad, for example, you know, tourist information points or electronic check-in <laughs> services at airports, that kind of thing. Then you have, you know, you have access to the front panel of the machine. So you can plug in maybe a USB device and, and have a keyboard, uh, you know, some like the uh, the photo kiosks at uh, at your local Walmart or, or drugstore where you can plug in your USB stick full of images and pick through them and, and print something. And then you have uh, a machine where you have access to all the interfaces, Right, you can plug in USB, Ethernet, HDMI, or FireWire devices. You know, hmm. any kind mm-hmm. of thing where it's you know a whole physical machine. Yeah, like a, like a or, full or, PC sitting you know, there. A, a lot of uh, point of sale systems are a full little Dell PC or whatever, but the the back ports are pointing at the user. Yeah, uh, see that a lot. Really, you see that a yeah. lot. I, I kind of wonder why they don't just install them sideways. It's not like the cashier needs access to the front panel that easily. Mm-hmm. I'm, it's mostly just for wiring, I guess, or just because you always point the front of the computer at the user, right? <laughs> uh, Gotta hit that power guess, button. You know, pointing the power button at the 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 customer side would probably be bad for you know little kids walk up and turn the computer off on you, but you know anyway. And then the the highest level of physical access is you have access to inter- internal parts of the computer. You can remove or replace the disks, uh, you know, stick in new RAM or pull out RAM or insert new devices or whatever you want. You know, like your own computer where you can do whatever you want to it. But yeah. Anyway, uh, I found that one pretty interesting. Um, uh, thankfully, unlike the uh, the Veracrypt uh, audit that we looked at before, where there's a couple of issues, where I think you know. I can see how that might apply to the FreeBSD bootloader. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of these, uh, like this, apply to the <laughs> Of course FreeBSD you're looking at that. Because... You always got the BSD angle, Alan. <laughs> well, is it, uh, you know, I don't want to be the person that's at fault for causing the same thing to happen to BSD is all, right? For sure. Yeah. You know, as this is one of the areas I work in. I, I'm Good lesson, though. About yeah. Rather than, mm-hmm. you know, trying to just be like, oh, Linux is stupid. <laughs> well, it is, uh, it's nice to see, some, see, some, see it happen to somebody else and go... Yep, okay, we didn't make that mistake. That is, I do follow you there. Uh, well, all right, so, uh, boy, you know what I kept thinking of as we talk about uh, physical access? <clears throat> as I keep thinking about Thunderbolt and USB, the new USB-C connectors, like on the new MacBook Pros and devices that are shipping with Thunderbolt, because that's right on the PCI bus. And if yeah, that, if that uh, becomes... Similar, they actually mentioned, you know, FireWire. Uh, 
Well, FireWire was very useful because it allowed you to debug what was happening in the computer because you had full access like that. It was also kind of a security problem. You could see what Apple's doing though. With they have, the, they're using the USB-C connector. There's more and more laptops that are shipping with USB-C now. Not all of them are Thunderbolt three, but probably some of them will be. And that's that's you. You plug into that, and you're on the you're on the bus. You're there. You could you could read the RAM. I mean, you're right there. That is going to be really interesting from a security standpoint. As uh, that's you know, again, of course, whenever you have physical access, you've pretty much got everything. But this is going to be a whole new level of access when you do get physically to the machine. Do you have any other thoughts on the story? Uh, no, that's it for that one. All right, well, let's take a moment and uh, let's thank our first sponsor of the day. That's IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and go over there and find out more about their incredible systems for your workload that are powered by those great Intel processors. ixsystems.com slash techsnap where you go to support the show and grab their white paper if your company is looking at making the switch. And also visit them to see their new website. They got a new – I like that they're featuring some of the great – like. Great, great clients they have. The Mozilla Foundation, Adobe, VMware, Sega, Symantec, GM. That's just like the tip of the iceberg, too. They've also got Noah and many, many more. Not Noah that uh, from LAS. No, no, the, the national, what is it, national? Oceanograph. I think like so. Atmospheric Association mm-hmm. or whatever. So they make, every, they make everything from, you know, an office of, for three or four people or even somebody, a power user, where you get the free NAS Mini. And now yeah, the so from a little Freemas Mini that kind of just sits under your desk quietly and, and you store your family photos on it or, yeah. or your media collection or whatever, yeah. uh, up to the, the, the Freemas Mini XL, which is more like, I need more storage, maybe it's a small office or whatever. Uh, and then they got, you know, custom-built servers you're going to use for whether that's, again, something for your office, something for your co-location for your company where you only have one or two, three servers, something like that, or if you're going to have a whole bunch of servers. And then they have the TrueNAS, where it's like, I need multi... Uh, had redundant storage uh, to power all my VMware machines or, or my Zen or whatever virtualization you're using. Uh, or it's like, I need to buy whole racks of gear at a time. And they'll work with you, too. They have a really good sales engineering team. That's, you know, what I think, mm-hmm. Alan, is like almost every machine slightly modified for scale engine when you pick up a server from IX? I mean, because it seems like you're yeah, either like... never bought anything stock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool, though, right? Because it's... it's yeah, well, it's because... I don't want to spend money on thing, functionality I'm not going to use, and I want to get the most out of the functionality I do. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were just, uh, you know, building these new machines for me, and then they were like, so uh, Intel just released this newer line of SSDs. It's even faster. I'm oh. like, yeah, I, w- I want those. Yeah, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, this isn't a shock to Alan or I, uh, especially since we were at MeetBSD last week, but uh, mm-hmm. IX Systems is officially launching True OS. Which uh, it's the next evolution of PCBSD. It's a it's a big update to PCBSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what most people didn't know is there's TrueOS Pico, uh, a version to run on embedded devices like a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, that was interesting. To it, it was Chris's talk was good. Uh, Chris Moore yes, gave a talk at uh, at uh, MeetBSD, and uh, the MeetBSD was put on by IX Systems. So it's really an interesting. It's really interesting to see them in action too, and. And uh, see them work with the community, but really let the community drive so much of that event. So, mm-hmm. are you guys? Are you guys must be planning to talk about BSD on the on a future BSD now? Uh, you mean yesterday's BSD now? Oh yeah, that would make sense because today's <laughs> Thursday. I know today's my first day back. Uh, so yeah, I didn't even think about that. So you guys talked about it all in uh, BSD now yep. yesterday. Well then, we won't we won't repeat. I'll just say I enjoyed it myself, and it was good. To no, we, uh, you and I had different. Uh, Interactions there as well. And mm-hmm. I'm going to yeah. release a couple of videos on it. I'm going to do just yes. two, a couple of dedicated videos on it. So those will be coming out soon. Probably by the yes, time so we do this, 
probably by the time we do our next episode, they'll be out because they're already mostly edited and published uh, or ready for publishing. I just have a little bit more uh, finishing up to do. But, but you know, as a as a you know person that's mostly been to the more Linux festy mm-hmm. kind of yeah. user meetup and the big Linux cons and the right. Oscons and stuff like that. Uh, how did it compare? Uh, it seems like it's even more, it's, it's not, so there are community led events like scale is a, is, is technically led by the community because a group of community members come together and they take on key positions and they run the event. But this is like the participants that showed up essentially, uh, voted for the topics they wanted to talk about the most and the people who really just wanted to split off and just go make code just did it. Uh, it seemed much more. It seemed much more like the people in attendance were driving the direction of the event, and MeetBSD was there to facilitate people that are already capable of getting work done. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think that's the big thing. Is, is what makes it an unconference is the fact that you know some no some of the topics we voted on on the website when you registered and so on to try to help them sort things out ahead of time. But yeah, like the the idea was that. Okay, so, you know, how many people want to talk about, you know, Beehive, the virtualization thing? It's like, okay, uh, you know, that's room number three upstairs. Right. You can all go there. And then, you know, what else do people want to talk about? And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's a good one. Or who wants to talk about revamping the way we build, you know, um, Packer images and, uh, and do Vagrant and that kind of stuff? It's like, oh, well, there's a whole group of people that are all interested in that. And here, you know, Steve, you lead that because... You're the other that's worked on that the most recently and kind of getting that mix um, and having those what we call bird of a feather sessions, because the the big difference with those is that the idea is it's just a bunch of people with interest in that having more of a two way conversation, you know, just kind of stand in a small circle and and talk about it. Whereas, you know, for ZFS, um, you know, it's always one of the most popular for those. So instead, what we did is created a panel. Yeah, that was where we'd great. Have a bunch of experts and just have people fire questions at us for four mm-hmm. to five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um because, you know, most of the we, we've had ZFS boss at almost every conference now, but most of the time it, it is just, a, you know, lots of people having questions and only a few people with answers. And so that's not quite a boff so much as is kind of like a panel or a question answer period. So we did that separately. Um, but, yeah, they've, they've had a lot of cool events uh, in the past, too. Um, I know at, when we were at Western Digital two years ago, they had one about uh, so they had a Freenas Mini. Uh, doing a build world, uh, compiling FreeBSD. And then they started taking bets on uh, pulling hard drives out and, and, and seeing when <laughs> it would stop working. <laughs> they take a bet. Because of the, the ZFS arc and the read ahead, it continued working for a little bit even after they pulled out all the hard drives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my first XL I'd seen in person. Yeah. Was uh, there at EPSD. But, but what the interesting thing was when you know someone volunteer, got chosen to be the person that came up and pulled one of the hard drives out, they also got to smash the hard drive with a hammer. No. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Take out some aggression. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> oh, they had a bunch of different devices for destroying them, but Western Digital wouldn't let them bring the blowtorch into the building. Oh. 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 Yeah. They got to strike. I can imagine why. Yeah. Uh, and the Tesla coil uh, was broken or something. It wasn't working. Oh, man. Those are cool. There's one up here, and it's super neat. So, yeah, we're still talking about IX. I mean, I guess the point of the, <clears throat> the, point of the reason why we want to talk about MeetBSD during the IX spot is... Uh, they're the ones that <clears throat> facilitated this. They 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 uh, they got a space on the Berkeley campus that was just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so much fun for me to shoot uh, filming wise, just because it was so cool looking. 
Um, so a lot of the videos I'm going to release will it'll, the, the 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 area is featured very prominently because it's very beautiful, great food. They they paid for all of that. They really go all out, swag, shirts, all that. Um, and did you did you get your shot glass? Yeah, yeah. I don't know where it is. I also got a cool little frosted meat BSD mug. Did you get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. <clears throat> I was drinking well, that. That was I my coffee it, home. And I managed mug. to to keep it for. You know, like two hours after I got home, and then somebody nicked it. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, just, I was driving the RV, sipping out of my meat BSD mug, going go. down the road. Uh, it's just really, it's just so, it's so interesting to just see how how much IX puts into stuff like this. And I think it's it's just a great indication of what kind of a company they are. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnaps, where you go to learn more. A big thanks to IX for sponsoring this show and for putting on such a fun event. And uh, Super great to meet so many of you out there. Uh, I think, yeah, there were I think quite a few people. literally everyone there probably knew who you and I were and knew what BSD Now was and TechSnap. I mean, it was, a, it was <laughs> yeah, our crowd. It was a good uh, crowd. You know, quite a few people uh, introduced themselves to me in, you know, yeah. uh, in, the, in the lobby of the hotel yeah. when we were just hanging out playing board games and so on. Yeah, and I I had a I got a huge delight. Uh, I would say within eight minutes when we arrived at the Berkeley campus in my RV, within eight minutes, Michael Dexter was knocking on the door, bringing a crew of people in, telling us where to meet everybody up at, where the beer was at, greeting us. Super, you know, just great. Oh, always great to see him in person. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just fun to see everybody there, and uh, it was a good event. So I will I will have to definitely catch that episode of BSD now that uh, probably is gonna probably out already. And uh, I will I will hopefully have the videos ready for next week's tech snap. They'll be short, concise, and really hopefully give you a feel of uh, what BSD is. And I tried to frame it from a Linux user's perspective, so how sort of the other half lives. And uh, that'll be out probably next week. Ixsystems.com. Yeah. Uh, what'll be really interesting is if we can get you to BSD can next year. I would love it because yeah. it's a different feel from BSD. Uh, I like both of them, and but they're they're definitely different. Hmm. Okay. Like you know, there were there were a couple of you know the regular kind of lecturey style talks uh, at Meet BSD, but at BSD can there are three rooms of that going on all day. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd, that'd be quite a variety of topics. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Um, all right, I'm a little concerned about our next story because I see a screenshot of the Unity desktop, and I'm a little worried where this is going already. This probably yeah. is a bad sign. What do we got? Mm-hmm. Alan? So this one, <laughs> I found quite amusing. Oh, jeez. So this is Zero Day Exploit, how to compromise a Linux desktop using a Nintendo Entertainment System. An NES? No, not, not even a... Not su- quite exactly. Okay, I was going to say. This is the, the, the processor in the NES was this, what's called the 6502. By using 6502 processor opcodes uh, in the emulation that happens, you can compromise a Linux desktop. Mm. So uh, a vulnerability and a separate logic error exists in GStreamer 0.10.x, which is the player of NSF, which is the Nintendo Sound Framework or something like that, which are music files. So this is a file format for storing the music from from an old, you know, very first gen Nintendo. Combined together, those that that vulnerability and the logic error allow uh, a very reliable exploitation that can bypass 64-bit ASLR, uh, data execution prevention, etc. The reliability is provided by the presence of a Turing-complete scripting language inside the music player. Uh, the NSF files are music files for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, so here's a screenshot of the exploit being triggered. Somewhat alarmingly, it does so without the user opening the exploit file. 
All they have to do is navigate to a folder that contains the file. So when your little file manager is that what it is the file? Yeah. Yeah. So they just go to the directory that has that file in it, and when the file Trying manager takes it. the file yeah. to to do a preview or whatever, it runs the exploit, and the exploit in this case is run causes it to remote code execute calculator. Right, that's the, the <laughs> not an example on window for a for a whitehead exploit is you know you exploit the, and you make it run calculator or notepad. Uh, so they they did that for Linux in this case. That's funny. Uh, just the preview of the file generate done automatically by your file manager is enough to exploit your system. In this case, pop calculator. So uh, you download the file uh, exploit Ubuntu twelve dot oh four dot five underscore xcalc dot nsf. Uh, at, you know, just like in the image above, and the file is then renamed to time underscore bomb to mp3 so that the file manager will automatically try to taste it. Uh, and then as the file name suggests, the exploit works against Ubuntu uh, 12.04.5. Now, that's an older version of Ubuntu, but it's still a supported distribution. Okay. So uh, the, wait, does it not work on newer ones? Uh, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, specifically for reproducibility, it works against exactly Ubuntu 12.04.5 oh, okay. without further updates. Mm-hmm. Uh if you take all the updates, you'll get a newer version of glibc, which changes some code offsets, and the exploit will crash. Now, you could mm-hmm. modify the exploit to work with the newer version, but he's, he's like, I'm not going to spend all day making it work with every different version of Ubuntu. But someone else could easily take this uh, exploit and make it work with a different specific version. That was just the one that he was working with. Okay. Uh, yeah, is it... Uh, the crash is, of course, deterministic, and it would be possible to code the exploit to cater to arbitrary glibc versions, uh, but that's left as an exercise to the reader. So the vulnerability is actually in libgst, uh, so libgstreamer NSF, which is the Nintendo Sound Framework, uh, which is an audio decoder present in gstreamer 0.10 uh, distributions. Ubuntu 12.04 uses gstreamer 0.10 for all of its audio handling needs. Uh, conversely, Ubuntu 14.04 is apparently affected because the default install includes GStreamer 0.10, but most of the media handling applications will pull in GStreamer 1.0, and those two can be installed side by side. Installing the newer one doesn't replace the older one. Uh, So the exact circumstances under which 14.04 will use the vulnerable GStreamer 0.10 versus the not vulnerable GStreamer 1.0 is not clear. Mm. So on 14.04, it's probably only exploitable by certain apps depending which thing they they linked against i see but i'm guessing the file manager uses the base version uh and only you know third-party apps you install depend on the newer version of gstreamer that makes sense uh the exact circ- uh the ubuntu 1604 default install only has gstreamer 1.0 so it's not effective so it only works on 1204, might work on 1404, and doesn't work on 1604. RMH helpfully points out that for Ubuntu users, that would be the plugins that are labeled bad plugins in the Ubuntu repo. <laughs> That's like the, they have like the, they're bad because they have, um, you know, proprietary codecs in them or something like that. I can't remember why they call them bad, but there's like the bad plugins. So if you install those. Right, but uh, maybe. That know. would be the, that would be the 10, oh, or whatever, the, the later one, yeah. Uh, so he also provides a patch to solve the problem, which is literally just uh, rm user lib x86 linux gnu gstreamer slash lib gst nsf.so. He says, well, at first glance, this patch would appear to remove functionality. It does not. Your wonderful NSS files will still play. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, really? Uh, 
Would you believe that Ubuntu 12 and 14 ship not one, but two different code bases for playing these NSF files? It's so important. Uh, there's a lot of code for a very fringe format. Yeah, I guess. The second NSF player is based on libgme and does not appear to have the vulnerability uh, that the first one does. So if you remove the file for the GStreamer version, it'll use the libgme one, and that one's not vulnerable. Hmm. Uh, this exploit abuses a vulnerability in GStreamer 1.10 uh, plugin for playing NSF music files. These music files are not like most other music files where your desktop would play them, right? Oh, no. Typically, music files are based on compressed samples and are decoded with a bunch of math. Instead, the NSF music files, on the other hand, are actually played by emulating the NES's CPU, the 1605, and the real sound hardware. Oh. <laughs> Is that cool or what? So the GStreamer wow. plugin creates a virtual 6502 CPU hardware environment and then plays the music by running a bit of 6502 code and then sampling the values out of the virtualized sound hardware registers and then making those noises. All that's happening is because you want to play a sound file. Right. So that's instead amazing. of having, say, an MP3 of the rendering of this NES thing, it's virtualizing the NES and running the original code is basically, you know, the equivalent of the sheet music for this NES. That's really kind of, um, that's really kind of incredible. Yeah. So uh, in order to actually exploit this vulnerability or a vulnerability like it, there are various uh, plausible different avenues. So one is you could uh, send the exploit via an email attachment. If the victim downloads and opens the file, they're compromised. Note, uh, for this to work, you would need to rename the exploit uh, to a .mp3 or something so that their music player will fire off, you know, GStreamer and try to play it. Because most Linux desktops don't have a file association for NSF files. Mm. But they'll happily stuff any sequence of bytes in an MP3 file through the media player. Uh, most GStreamer-based media players will ignore a file suffix and instead use the file codec auto-detection to figure out which, uh, you know, library to use to play the file. Uh, partial drive-by download. By abusing mm. Google Chrome's somewhat risky file download user interface, it, it's possible to dump files into the victim's download folder uh, when a booby trap website is visited. When the download folder is later viewed in their file manager, such as Nautilus, uh, an attempt is made to auto-thumbnail the files with known suffixes and exploit. <laughs> and <Or> exploit. By, <laughs> by full downloading. Again, abusing Google Chrome's download user interface, there's a path to an, a possible full drive-by download, uh, and that'll be exposed in a separate blog post later. And, of course, you could always bring the files on a USB stick, and then, you know, if they browse the USB stick, blamo. Mm -hmm. So the actual vulnerability, there's uh, two parts to it. The first one is a lack of checking of the ROM size uh, when mapping it into the 6502's memory and bank switching. Uh, there's a near total lack of bound checking uh, for the proposed RAM uh, ROM mappings. This applies to the initial ROM load as well as subsequent ROM bank switching. So the emulator doesn't check and can just overflow the memory and end up mm. in the regular computer space instead of the emulator. Mm. And number two is the ability to load or bank switch ROMs to writable memory locations. Uh, he says probably not an actual vulnerability per se, so there's no identifier assigned, no CVE number. But uh, other NES music players I've looked at do not permit the loading or bank switching of ROM data at addresses below 0x8000. Uh, but this particular player does, uh, either via a ROM load address in a header file that is below 8000, or via writes to the bank registers at uh, 5FF6 or 5FF7. 
whereas other emulators do not have bank registers as low as 5FF6 or 5FF7. So if you write, say, 0 uh, to 5FF6, this will result in the first 4096 bytes of the ROM being mapped read and write in the 6205 virtual address space at 6000. Uh, in our 200-byte file example, this means that uh, the subsequent write of 0x41 to virtual address space 0x6048 uh, will result in 41 being written uh, out of bounds past the end of the host emulator's heap and leaking into the actual computer. Uh, you know, as can be appreciated, we now uh, have a lot of reads and write control over the host emulation heap and the uh, more and ex more experienced exploit writers will realize that the successful exploitation is already all but assured at that point. Mm. So basically, you can escape the memory of the emulator and start writing all over memory wherever you want when stuff that's supposed to be read only. I see. And uh, so, if you want more detail on how it actually works, the article has I think it's about the eight steps it goes through to actually pop the calculator, and like showing memory dumps of what it looks like and and getting into. A lot more detail than I have time to go through right now. But it says, uh, <clears throat> there's a critical reason that decent, reliable exploitation was possible with this bug, and that is the presence of some form of scripting language. In this case, the script happens to be the 6502 opcodes. Uh, having an exploit running in script enables important exploitation aspects, such as making decisions based on exploitable or uh, exploitation environment, and in particular, using code to observe the effects of memory corruption or a memory leak and uh, make sense of the following decisions. So this is uh, one of the reasons that browsers and browser plugins like Flash and Java are popular exploitation targets is because they are fundamentally scripting languages and allow the attacker to make an exploit that will work on more than just one computer. Hmm. Right? Because it can come to, you know, how the memory gets laid on your computer can come down to like what order extensions in your browser are loaded or, uh, you know, what OS you're using or what version of a specific library you have will all affect the memory offsets. Like we saw uh, with this one, if you just have a different version of glibc than the guy who wrote the exploit, the exploit might not work on your computer. Whereas if you have more of a scripting language, you can find what those offsets end up being and then make an exploit that will still work even with some variants in the different versions of glibc. Yeah, and what else I like about it is, so Nautilus is the go-to because it'll try to preview the file, but... If you also try to open the file in Totem, or he says Rhythmbox, which pops two calculators, uh, there's other you know other GStreamer based applications yeah, are also just exploitable. You know, if you actually open the file, you're you're screwed in like many mm -hmm. different ways. Yeah, but a bunch of these allow you to get screwed even without actually opening the yeah. file. Yeah, that's scary just too. Just by browsing a directory that has it in it. I just like the flexibility of it. <laughs> yeah. Another great example of this phenomenon is Windows font parsing and rendering. Mm. This was traditionally occurred in the kernel. And, and you know, rendering monitoring faults quite uh, fonts quite involved. Yes, running a little language to make rendering decisions. Uh, like many times, attackers have used that same language to cause Windows kernel corruption and proceed to full ring zero compromise by using a little uh, you know script inside a font to make decisions about reliably proceeding with the exploit. And so you know we've seen this uh, that you know scripting languages give the attacker lots of power because they can control the code that's going to be executed more easily. Uh, but, you know, this really raises the question is, I thought one of the ideas behind Linux was that I wanted my file manager to browse my files and not go through and, you know, create a thumbnail cache of every, you know, I hated that on Windows XP where you create that little, like, thumbs.db yep. 
and have this giant hidden file of like uh, frame grabs from all the videos in a directory. It's like I'm browsing over the network and it's wasting bandwidth. It's like, no, 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 stop that. And they're, they always grab the worst but frame, it turns too. Out, uh, yeah, but also in, in this case, it's not a list. It's like, what's it going to do with this MP3 pile? Trying to like get the ID3 tags from it or something? It's like, I suppose, but I didn't ask you to do that. So why are you doing that? There was a time and place a long time ago in Nautilus where when you hovered over an MP3 file or you clicked it once, it would immediately play the file. But that functionality was, at least at the UI level, removed a while ago. It's back, actually. It was added when the company called Easel created the Nautilus file manager for their desktop. And it was original functionality in that file manager Back when everybody had MP3s on their hard drive that they just needed to play all the time? I'm not well, exactly I, sure. I still have that, but how about not playing it until I double-click it? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's not, for some feature that's Opening and parsing it and running the code in every one of these files just because I've looked at the directory. See, again. look, that's amazing if you think about it. You view a directory, and in the background, it is emulating an NES, if you have these files in your directory, it's emulating an NES chip. And you didn't and ask it to do anything. the code in it and sampling the audio out of it. Oh, I guess, uh, I guess Matei Desktop still does it too, so it would probably affect the... Of course, it would affect those file managers as well. Yeah. It's just... Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would want my... I, it's interesting because that seems inherently like it's going to make large directories slow. Think about that on a large directory scale. And if anything, I want my file manager accessing the file system as little as possible so that way you can load as fast as possible because... Right, so even... But, you know, maybe it's doing this asynchronously only after it's loaded the entire directory to start doing this in the background. And I think you're being too directory. generous. I doubt it. And, yes. It's probably all it single-threaded, too. It's still <laughs> generating all this network I.O. And what yeah. if it is... I'm browsing my home NAS over a VPN yeah. on my laptop on, you know, tethered to my phone and every byte is precious. How about not doing that? Well, I can, I can, there is some option there. So like if I, uh, here in the preferences, uh, so this is, this is on, uh, this is uh, Nautilus. And then the chat room mentions, what about, uh, a lot of these desktops have background file indexers that so, just crawl your whole hard yes, drive and look yeah. at every file and find out what music you have and so on. It's like, yeah, uh, well, a bunch of those probably could be exploited this way, too. If you they might, to use you might be able to word about this. So here's, I'm looking, this is Nautilus right here. This is the latest version of Nautilus. Um, what, what if you just chose to never show thumbnails? I bet that would turn off that whole feature. Possibly, but you can't make a thumbnail of an MP3. Yeah. So. And then also it allows you to set uh, the maximum file size. So right now, uh, anything that's larger than 10 megabytes, it doesn't try to read, apparently. And so you could maybe drop that but down to 100K. if you actually want thumbnails for video... I or images, actually, images bigger than 100 megabytes. I like to look at it for like my backgrounds folder and stuff. I like my backgrounds folder to have previews of the. I don't have desktop wallpaper. It's like I don't look at my background. Yeah. I have Windows covering it always. I have. Look at this. Right now, I have this nice serene background. Oh, but just changed right there. I have this weird randomizer. Yeah, I don't even know what the, this is. Just random. Those are like rings made out of rope. Yeah, I could try but, to change um, it, but there's a there's a 70 percent chance it'll be boobs. Here, I'll watch. See if I change it. I'll let's see. Uh, I'll delete this one because this is kind of this is kind of a dumb one. Delete to trash, and then it'll generate me a but new one. See, I'm so, the, that's how, boom. The, my bigger question is, when do you ever see these? Because, like, I always have windows up over top of my you're desktop. Looking at my, you're looking at my desktop right now. Well, why aren't you using the computer to do something useful? Well, in GNOME, you don't get a desktop. You don't get to put icons on your desktop. I mean, you can, but not by default. So. Right, but, uh, well, I don't use the, I don't have very many icons on my desktop either, because I never see my desktop. I have. There's I, always, like, eight apps over top see, of See, I have, like, a whole bunch of folders. I just dump everything in a folder in my home directory, because I can't, I sure, can't, sure. they don't let me. But I'm saying, like, 
Why don't you have six windows open? Oh, I do. Those are on other desktops. See, those are up here. Boom. Ah. Yeah, multiple desktops, my friend. Sure. I don't know. So watch. Kapow. Boom. Multiple desktops. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It is, uh, it is a silly feature, and it should be off by default because it takes disk access or it wastes network bandwidth. And now, apparently, it's also the source of vulnerability. And my god, spinning up a virtual machine in the background to preview a file is nuts. At what point do you draw the line? Of course, they have no idea when they're creating Nautilus that the back-end codec they're handing it off to is doing all of that either. So, they're going to blame the other. They're going to blame the codec folks. The file manager people will say, it's not us, it's the codec. So, there you go. Any other thoughts on that, sir? I don't mess with it for that Well, then, let's take a moment and thank our second sponsor, and that'd be Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com is where you go to support this show and get $25 in either service credit or off your first device at techsnap.ting.com. Now, Ting is mobile that makes sense. No BS, you only pay for what you use, no contract, no early termination fee, no quote-unquote agreements. It's just a better way to do mobile. And you can see how much you might save by clicking that what would you save button right at techsnap.ting.com. Now, here's some basic math. Average monthly bill from Ting per device is going to be about 23 bucks. That's like a smartphone with texting, data, making calls, all of it. You just pay for what you use, minutes, messages, megabytes, and it's a flat $6 for the line. They have really great customer service. You get to talk to an actual human that actually cares and is there because they want to be. They have GSM and CDMA services, so that means more devices are compatible, and you can choose whatever network is better in your area. Check out their BYOD page, because if you bring a device, you're going to get $25 in service credit that'll probably pay for more than your first month's bill. They have a really great control panel. No other wireless carrier in the U.S., at least that I've tried, has ever even come close to this. Plus, they have apps on your mobile device as well to allow you to manage your account. But, you know, I was just talking about that new MacBook Pro with its uh, new uh, USB-C ports. And if you're a MacBook user, you might have a couple of extra MagSafe uh, power adapters that don't work anymore with the new MacBook. You know, and sometimes your multi-tools, they get taken when you're going through the airport when you're traveling. So if, you're, uh, if you are a new MacBook owner and you're traveling, that can be a real predicament. And Ting has a tip for you. There's something you can still get use out of that MagSafe power adapter. Check it out. It's the Ting tip for the beer Mac charger win. You take off the adapter there. Look at that. It's got that little metal piece in there. They bring out the beer. Watch it. And... Clicks right off. So, see, you can't say the MagSafe adapter's uh, not good for anything anymore. Look at that. You could... Oh, yeah. Be careful. Be careful. Just give me... You might have to do it a few times. Also, you could take off coffee cup lids if you're not a beer drinker. Or you could pour your beer in the coffee cup. Ha, ha, ha. That's great. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go check them out. The Ting blog is great. In fact, if you're a cord cutter, they've been following the new Rokus like a dog after a bone. Look at this. They've also just done a rundown of the brand new fancy schmancy OS 7.5. They just rolled out to the Rokus. I love this. I love this. I don't know why they do this, except for the, just the fact that they're geeks. Because I'm, I'm, I'm loving the hell out of these posts. Go check out. Great like, phones. I guess if you have their... Their internet service, but that's under a different brand than Ting, isn't it? No, I mean, they, they, they do have the Ting Fiber. Yeah, that is true. That's right. that's true. Because, you know, you, you can become a cord cutter if you have don't, a nice Roku in, a, in the don't right tell them. Just, don't tell them. I want them to keep doing it. Just keep doing mm -hmm. it. Just keep doing it. 
Also, I'm don't do it. I'm saying yeah, I know, it's good know. to this replace is your cable. Probably worth mentioning. Um, this is this is nuts. It's re. I think it's got to be a refer, but I'm not sure. Uh, Crazy Ting is blowing it out. If you just want a feature phone that has like a week long battery life, you can get the Ansatel One Touch Fling right now for twenty dollars. Yeah, it's a refurb. So it, it says Alcatel. Alcatel. Oh yeah, yeah Alcatel is a, a, yep. like a popular yeah. name brand. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm, I'm a spaz. Well, uh, you're and, saying uh, the name of a, a silly off brand that's meant to sound like it. And <laughs> and you think about this, think about this. If you go to text now, I don't know if they're going to give you. I don't know. I don't know if they'll give you a discount because it's already twenty bucks. But if you get this for twenty bucks and then you get the twenty five dollars service credit, oh my gosh, that is such a twenty bucks for the phone. <laughs> Only pay for what you use. $25 of service credit, and the line's only 6 bucks a month. You know, this is the type of phone my dad likes. Yeah. So it's like, Christmas time, get some people some phones for $20. Yeah, well, Don't you know what? you spent like $100 on the phone. I actually met several guys at MeetBSD, and it's kind of adorable because each time they were the only, they thought, well, I'm the only one that has one of these. Check this out. And they were pretty... They were pretty Pretty known figures in the free BSD community. They're like, I don't need, I don't need an internet in my pocket. I don't need that. He said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of them are security conscious and don't want that. Or and it's just simple, and it's something you don't have to worry about and put on the charger every single night. Plus, if you just want an emergency line, you could keep it in the glove box. You could give it to the kid. You know, there's all kinds of options. Or if you have a babysitter and you just want to make sure you can get a hold of them, check it out. TechSnap.ting.com. Of course, they've got everything up to the latest and greatest smartphones too, and you can bring your own device. I really like getting something from the Play Store, like a, a Nexus device, or now I guess a Pixel, because then you have the pure Google experience, you get monthly updates, Ting never stands in the way of that. It's a really great combination. Look at this. Have you, you upgraded all... a device to Android 7 yet? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, the uh, 6P is. Well, I've had the update pending, but I didn't want to do it just before MeetBSD. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, you know, what do people think of it? <laughs> I, I didn't find it to be a huge difference. Um, okay. Well, I, I, I'm glad because I hate when they move everything on me. Yeah. No, no, it's definitely not like that. Uh, hey, look at this. Look at this, too. I guess we should move on from this. But look at this. You can get the Nexus 5X uh, for 338 bucks, And that's that's still a supported Android device with decent performance for sure. Uh, you can get mm -hmm. the latest Android on there. Or you can you can finance for like 19 bucks a month, which I don't know. I That might be an option for some people. Check it out, techsnap.ting.com. I like the 5X because it's a good way to get into a Nexus device with a pure, pure Google experience and still have that fingerprint reader on the back. Um, and the 5X camera is is not bad if you're taking photos of something that's not moving very fast. Uh, and then you combine that with the Google Post Processing and you're actually pretty pretty much set to go. TechSnap.Ting.com. A big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And thanks to everybody out there who joins to Ting, joins over at Ting and uh, uses that URL, TechSnap.Ting.com, to support the show. Okay, we have one more big news item before we get into our feedback and roundup. Poison Tap. I'm not quite sure what this yes. one's about. I've been waiting all episode. Tell me, well, sir. So if you remember, uh, a couple of months ago, we talked about somebody built this device on one of those, what's it, like a turtle jack or something it was called. Mm. Anyway, you, you plugged it into the computer and it confused the computer and let you like break into the computer when it was locked. All right. Remember that one? Would have been about six weeks ago, I think. Anyway, somebody is... Uh, you know, taking that concept and and Run making with it? it much broader, okay. and brought the price down from needing you know a two hundred dollar specialty USB device to uh, a five dollar Raspberry Pi Zero. Mm. So yes, uh, the Poison Tap, which is Raspberry Pi Zero with some Node.js code on it, when it's plugged into a locked or password protected computer, it can a emulate an Ethernet device over USB or Thunderbolt. 
wow. hijack all internet traffic from the machine despite being a low priority or unknown network interface, siphon and store all HTTP cookies and sessions from the web browser for the Alexa top 1 million websites. So it has a, a database of the 1 million most popular websites and it steals your cookies from all of them. Uh, <laughs> it can expose an internal router to the attacker, making it uh, accessible remotely via outbound WebSocket and DNS rebinding. Nice. So that when uh, I leave this hooked up to your computer or whatever, I can then, from my computer at home, connect to your computer and take it over. It installs a persistent web-based uh, backdoor in HTTP cache of hundreds of thousands of domains using common JavaScript CDN URLs, uh, all with access to the user's cookie via cache poisoning, uh, allowing attackers to remotely force the user to make HTTP requests and proxy back the responses with the user's cookies to any backdoor domains. So that means I could, you know, uh, make requests to PayPal, and if you were already logged in, I would be able to just keep going, hmm. you know. Or basically, when you do your online banking, if you don't you know, explicitly log out, I could uh, keep making requests and drain your bank account or whatever. Right. If you just close uh, the browser window. Yep. Uh, it does not require the machine to be unlocked. So I can do all this while, you know, if you leave your machine locked at, uh, and step away from your desk at the office. Or, you know, if you're at a conference and you leave your laptop there, but you lock it first so nobody messes with it. Uh, if I can just plug my little device in the side, boom, done. <laughs> Also allows a backdoor remote access persists even after the device is removed and the attacker, uh, you know, walks away. Wow. So it must have infect the host operating system, mm -hmm. regardless of so, the host uh, OS, I guess. A, a list of things that this evades. So all the this is a list of security precautions that would normally protect you, but PoisonTap manages to go around all of these. The first is obviously your password protected lock screen. Because on most OSs, when you plug in a USB device, stuff happens whether you're logged in or not, right? You know, if you attach a new device, uh, you know, if you plug a webcam into a Windows machine, it loads the driver whether the machine's locked or not. Mm -hmm. And so when you plug in this little device, it's like, oh, look, a new Ethernet port. Right. And it's like, oh, I'm going to fire up and, you know, set up the network on that, fire up some DHCP on it and get all the settings and be ready to go. Uh, also, takes a, I can uh, override your routing table and uh, make the... This low priority interface suddenly have the default route for higher uh -huh. priority interface stuff. Clever. Uh, the same origin policy in browsers. Normally, I can't run JavaScript on PayPal from your machine because it'll be like, no, that has to come from PayPal. But using cache poisoning, then I can. Uh, the X frame options that stops uh, uh, an iframe on a website from being able to access it goes around that too. HTTP only cookies goes around that. Same site cookie attribute goes around that. Uh, many two-factor or multi-factor authentication systems, it can break those. Uh, DNS pinning, cores, which is the cross-origin resource sharing, and HTTPS cookie protection and the secure cookie flag, and uh, so on, if uh, HSTS is not enabled. How is it, how is it doing things like overcoming two-factor? Because it's intercepting the input? Uh, well, I think or? it's because uh, it, I can wait until you log in with the two-factors and then do stuff. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so the Poison Tap is built on a $5 Raspberry Pi without any additional components other than a micro USB cable and an SD card. Uh, you could also do it with other, uh, you know, emulated USB gadgets like a USB armory or a land turtle, but $5 Raspberry Pi Zero seems like uh, the cheapest way to get started with this. <laughs> yeah. 
So how it works. A poison tap introduces a cascading effect by exploiting the existing trust in various mechanisms in a machine and network, including how USB and Thunderbolt devices are trusted, uh, how DHCP answers, DNS, and HTTP are trusted, and uh, can produce a snowball effect of information exfiltration, network access, and installation of semi-permanent backdoors. So uh, for network hi hijacking, right, the attacker plugs in the poison tap, like a weaponized uh, Raspberry Pi Zero, wow. into the locked computer. So even if it's password protected, uh, poison tap emulates a USB device, you know, USB over US, uh, Ethernet over USB. Uh, by default, Windows, OS X, and Linux recognize Ethernet devices automatically load it as a low-priority network interface and perform a DHCP request across it, even if the machine is locked and password protected. And so now, the DHCP server running on the Raspberry Pi can send back whatever it wants. So PoisonTap responds to the DHCP request and provides the machine with an IP address. However, the DHCP uh, response is crafted to tell the machine that the entire IPv4 space, 0.0.0.0 through 255, is part of the PoisonTap's local network rather than a small subnet. So basically, the DHCP server gives a subnet mask of the entire internet. And suddenly, uh, instead of having to go outside your network and use the default route, that you got from your ISP, uh, every address on the internet is now local over this USB Ethernet device, making it override your routing table. Uh, so normally it would be irrelevant if a secondary network device uh, connects to a machine that is uh, given lower priority than existing trusted network devices and don't supersede the uh, gateway to for internet traffic. But any routing table, routing priority, and network interface service order security is bypassed due to the priority of land traffic over internet traffic, right? Every machine is going to try to send stuff over a, a local interface rather than the internet if it can. And uh, because of that, this means that this, uh, you know, DHCP server can lie and, and take over all your internet traffic. I, I'm expecting that soon uh, DHCP clients will have a rule that says don't allow a subnet bigger than this or something. Um mm. PoisonTap exploits this network access even as a low-priority interface because the subnet of the low-priority network now covers the entire internet. This means traffic destined to any address, like 1.2.3.4, while normally this traffic would be outside of your network and would go via your default gateway over the internet, it instead now goes over the PoisonTap interface. So then you have your cookie siphoning. As long as a web browser is running in the background, uh, it is likely one or more open pages will perform HTTP requests in the background. For example, to load a new ad, send data to an analytics platform, or just can track your movements around the website, or be doing IJAX or AJAX or whatever. Uh, you can see this yourself if you open up you know, the DevTools Inspector or whatever in your browser. Upon the HTTP request, because all traffic exits into the PoisonTap device, the PoisonTap DNS spoofs on the fly to return its own address, uh, causing the HTTP request to hit the PoisonTap web server, which is running Node.js. Uh, um, if the DNS server is pointing to uh, an internal IP, then PoisonTap cannot get privileges for. The attack continues to function as the uh, internal DNS server will produce public IPs uh, for the same uh, for the various domains attached, uh, and the public IP addresses will be routed via the PoisonTap. Hmm. So when the Node.js web server receives the request, PoisonTap responds with a response that uh, can be interpreted as HTML or as JavaScript, both of which execute properly. Uh, you know, many websites will load HTML or JavaScript and background requests. The HTML slash JS agnostic page 
then produces many hidden iframes. Each iframe across uh, is uses one of the one million top uh, domains from Alexa, um, and any you know X-frame option security in the domain is bypassed by PoisonTap, as now the HTTP server uh, chooses which headers to send to the client, and so it strips those headers. Hmm. Um, as every iframe HTTP request uh, to a site is made, including like NFL.com/slash/PoisonTap, the HTTP cookies are uh, sent to the browser. Right, because now your browser is like, oh, you're going to NFL.com. Let me send all the NFL cookies so they know who you are. Mm-hmm. And now I've stolen that. And we just do this for all top one million of the top domains. And your browser just gave away all your cookies to the person listening on the network. Right, this is basically equivalent to have someone uh, sitting there with Wireshark watching everything you do on the internet, except for it's recording it and it's using iframes to force you to go all the sites at once so it can steal all the cookies as quick as possible. Yeah. <clears throat> Because we're capturing cookies rather than credentials, many two-factor authentication systems are bypassed uh, because if you have a cookie, it doesn't make you do two-factor a second time, right? Uh, We're not actually performing the login function, but rather we're continuing an already logged in session, and so that doesn't cause two-factor authentication, right? I'm using your IP address, so it doesn't look like I've I've switched computers or something, and I have the cookie that says I'm still logged in, so I don't have to do two-factor. I can just skip it. Right, because I'm just continuing your session that where you're already logged in. Right. Hmm. Uh, and then it provides a remotely accessible web-based backdoor. So while PyzenTap has produced these thousands of iframes, forcing the browser to load each one, these iframes are not just blank pages. Rather, they're HTML and JavaScript backdoors where we set the headers to tell your browser to cache them forever. Hmm. Uh, because PoisonTap force caches these backdoors for each domain, the backdoor is tied to that domain, enabling the attacker to use the browser's cookies and launch same origin requests in the future. Right? Because normally, I can't run JavaScript from NFL.com on PayPal.com. But since I've made you uh, get one of these little backdoors for every one of those domains, I can now you know, fire off some JavaScript sure. that your browser hmm. will, is sure came from PayPal.com, even though it didn't. Uh, you know, because the backdoors are tied to the domain, it enables the attacker to use the domain's cookies and launch same origin requests in the future, even if the user is not currently logged in. For example, when you go to nfl.com slash PoisonTap, the iframe is loaded, PoisonTap accepts and diverts internet traffic and responds to HTTP requests via the node web server. Additional HTTP headers are added to cause that to be cached forever. Uh, the actual response to the page is a combination of HTML and JavaScript that produces a persistent WebSocket out to the attacker's web server over the internet, not the PoisonTap device, right? So now um, your browser is connecting out to a command and control server where then the bad guy can do a reverse tunnel and come back into that and take over your browser from home. So the WebSocket remains open, allowing the attacker to, at any point in the future, connect back to the backdoor machine and perform actions across any origin that the backdoor has implemented, which is the top one million websites. Uh, if the backdoor is open on one site, say NFL.com, but the user wishes to attack a different domain like Pinterest.com, uh, the attacker can load an iframe on NFL.com to the Pinterest uh, backdoor. So we just load an iframe that actually loads Pinterest.com slash poison tab which now has an exploit that's allowed to do stuff on Pinterest.com. Right. Any of the you know, X-frame options or, or cross-origin resource sharing or same-origin policy security of the domain is entirely bypassed by this cache poisoning we've done by causing your browser to cache this exploit for one million different domain names. And then the 
Raspberry Pi also contains an internal router backdoor and remote access. Uh, the one network poison tap is not able to hijack is your actual LAN subnet of you know your true network interface, right? The one that actually you know is like one nine two one six eight or whatever. Uh, this network is unaffected, but poison tap force caches a backdoor on a special host, specifically the target router's IP. Uh, prepended to ip.sammy.py, uh, which is the website where uh, this ex information is coming from. Uh, so this allows uh, a persistent DNS rebinding attack. So when PoisonTap, uh, if you're using PoisonTap as the DNS server, because the victim is using some public DNS server like Google or, or OpenDNS or their ISP, uh, PoisonTap responds with a specialized PoisonTap IP uh, temporarily, 1.0.0.1. Meaning any requests uh, at that moment that hit the PoisonTap web server will go through, uh, any trying to go anywhere will go through the PoisonTap web server. If instead the DNS server is set on the internal network, which is what most routers do nowadays, mm -hmm. like your little home gateway, yeah. an additional specially crafted request is made uh, for 1.0.0.1.pin.ip.sammy.py, which tells... Uh, their specialized DNS server, which is on the public internet, to temporarily respond to any IP address uh, dot IP dot whatever with the pinned address of 1.0.0.1. So he set up a real DNS server on the internet. When you make a request for something dot pin dot that range, it will, for the next so many minutes, respond to every request from that same DNS server with the 1.0.0.1 IP which will force your computer to go through the poison tap. Then the poison tap will then quickly set up the back door uh, and hijack the your internet access. Hmm. So any DNS pinning or DNS rebinding security is bypassed uh, due to exhausting the DNS pinning table due to hundreds of thousands of requests uh, that we keep making. <laughs> uh, yeah, and no rebinding so, needs to occur in the future, making the attack persistent over long periods of time. Oof. Uh, now that the backdoor is force cached, uh, you know, 192.168.0.1 to ip.sammy.py slash poison tap, any future requests to that address will hit the unpinned IP, causing 192.168.0.1 to resolve instead, uh, pointing directly to the router. That means if loading the, you know, 192.168.0.1.ip.sammy.py or PL poison tap host in an iframe remotely over the backdoor can now do Ajax get and post requests to any other page on the internal router uh, entirely remotely, which now means I can access your real router in order to, you know, log in as admin admin and reconfigure it. Mm -hmm. uh, this can lead to other attacks uh, on the router, which the attacker can then use and do all kinds of other interesting things. And they have some examples of how that works. And then they have additional uh, remotely accessible web-based backdoors. This is additionally... PoisonTap replaces thousands of common CDN-based JavaScript files, like Google's cache of jQuery, uh, with the correct uh, code plus a backdoor that gives the attacker access to any domain that happens to load this uh, you know, infected CDN-based JavaScript file. So replace all the common URLs for jQuery, which is built into like almost every website, and force them to cache a version of jQuery that's also infected with this uh, a backdoor, and now you've installed this backdoor in every uh, in more websites than just the 1 million most common websites. This is a really amazing piece of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so then they have a couple of notes at the bottom about how to try to defend yourself against poison tap. Yeah. 
Uh, so they want server-side security. If you're running a web server, you can secure it against Poison Tap simply by using HTTPS exclusively, uh, or at the very least for all authentication and authenticated clients. So this way, anybody that's trying to log in or anything always happens over HTTPS and has the HSTS headers on so that it'll never not do HTTPS. And this way, uh, all the cookies that you would normally have only exist over HTTPS and will not be able to be captured by the Poison Tap. So this is, honestly, you should use HTTPS exclusively uh, always and try to redirect HTTP to HTTPS. Uh, and that can help prevent users from being tricked into providing credentials over an unencrypted connection. Uh, but say, when loading remote JavaScript resources, use the sub-resource integrity script tag attribute uh, to make sure that it doesn't do something you're not expecting. Uh, and use HSTS so that it'll prevent any downgrades from encryption to non-encryption. From your desktop side, they're like, well, you could pour cement, and they imagine like you could also use like super glue or whatever, into USB and Thunderbolt ports, and then you know somebody can't plug one of these in, which is effective, but probably not very practical. Mm -hmm. uh, close your browser every time you walk away from your computer. Mm -hmm. That could work, but could get annoying and impractical. Mm -hmm. uh, disable the USB and Thunderbolt ports entirely, which is effective, but again, impractical, like pouring cement in them. Uh, or locking a computer has no effect as the network and USB stacks operate while the machine is locked. However, going into encrypted sleep mode where a key is required to decrypt the memory, like File Vault 2 and Deep Sleep, uh, solves most of these issues as your browser will no longer make requests, even if it's uh, woken up. And because, you know, uh, if it's asleep, it's not actually going to connect the new device until you're powering it on. And if you're sitting at the computer, there's less chance that this rogue device is going to be plugged into it. Right. The the bigger one of this is, you know, you had your computer there, you locked it, you went away for you to go to the bathroom and come back. And in the meantime, somebody plugged this device in and it had uh, hijacked your browser's background requests and, and loaded a million iframes. I'm a little curious how long this would take because a million iframes would take a little while to load. Especially huh, if you're yeah. on like slow Wi-Fi. <laughs> but yeah, I just you make know. your browser like just ping your mm -hmm. CPU. But uh, they have uh, here a GitHub repo with all the code to be able to do this and, and to build on it and make it do even more things. So, you know, if you and want, five you can check for the uh, for the pie. Yep, $5 for a Raspberry Pi Zero. Uh, and you need a uh, little micro USB cable, but who doesn't have like three of those? And <laughs> yeah. uh, an SD card. Right, right. Jeez. Uh, yeah, I know Poison for a little tap. while there was a deal at like Fry's or something where they were giving them a one one per person away for free of the Raspberry Pi Zeros. And I know for a while there was a, a magazine in the UK where if you bought a certain issue, it came with a Pi Zero. You know, they're $5. Poison tap. People pay $100 for them at, at, a, at the SD can because wow. they were being auctioned off, right? So there was a bidding war ah, for sure, that. sure, sure. Uh, full article is linked in the show notes. Also, Alan's great copious notes are there, too, if you just want a high-level overview or missed anything. It's all over at jupiterbroadcasting.com, and look for TechSnap 293, and you'll see it there. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, no. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that FreeBSD lacks a feature where plugging a device in automatically triggers a bunch of things to happen. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, it reminds me of, like... does have it, right? It does run DHCP automatically. It's, you know, it's a very common thing for user-facing yeah. user uh, systems. At, at some point, I think we'll see maybe DHCP clients that know enough not to do, mm. not to accept a subnet range wider than some reasonable number, like slash 20 or something. Right. 
Uh, although I guess I could see corporate networks using as much as a slash 16. Yeah. But I think anything wider than slash 16 is probably bogus. Yeah. And we could make a DHP client ignore that. Um, and a couple of other things. But yeah, uh, you know, it can get pretty scary. <laughs> Let's take a moment to talk about something that makes life simple. That's our third sponsor, DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code of power and knowledge. That's SnapOcean, one word. Put it together, apply it to your account once you've signed up, and you get a $10 credit. Oh, yeah, that's right. $10. Now, here's why that's sweet. $5 a month for the basic rig, and they also offer hourly pricing. My favorite rig is $0.03, cents, $0.03 cents an hour. So that $10 credit when you snap ocean gets your The one I'm using for work is like 12 cents. Ooh, that must be a nice one. Yeah, I say like 8 gigs of RAM. Yeah, I'm looking right now. Yeah. But, Damn. Uh, for our use, we only need it for a couple of hours. Right, exactly. It's like, oh, we need it all day on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. And so then we just delete it when we're done. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like we, have, we have a snapshot, which we pay like, it's like 5 cents a gigabyte or something, and it's like a 1 gigabyte snapshot. Mm -hmm. So 5 cents a month is whatever. Mm -hmm. Um and then we just clone that, you know, five times or whatever, and we get five servers, run them one in each different DigitalOcean data center for Saturday, and then delete them. That's nice. And then maybe we need it next weekend, maybe we don't. Yeah. I also, uh, I also, I also will just like when I'm experimenting with a topic for last, I'll spin up a DigitalOcean droplet, try it out, and then destroy the droplet after I'm done. Uh, so yeah, I just pay pennies on the dollar too. DigitalOcean is a really great place to just spin up a system when you need it on demand or put it in production for the long haul. I also have systems that run 24-7. They've been doing it for over a year. Great uptime, great reliability, and with $10 credit, you can try out their brilliant interface, their straightforward API, and their great documentation. Check this out, actually. One of my favorite favorite network latency tracking tools ever, SmokePing. They have a guide on how to set it up on FreeBSD 11 over at DigitalOcean. <clears throat> this is really, I love SmokePing, and it is a pain in the butt to set up on Linux. So it's really nice to have a, a little walkthrough right here for DigitalOcean on FreeBSD 11. I might just set up a droplet and have it ping a few of my things. Well, if you look at it, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward it, in BSD. Yeah, it is. And they got it all, they got it all like, and I, the formatting makes it super easy to read and all of that. Well, in particular, you know, the, the best part of a tutorial like this is that the, because they have the formatting showing which parts you're typing, which parts you're reading, and which parts are instructions, it makes it very easy to kind of not have to read every word. Yeah, and to, it breaks not it up. Not that you shouldn't read every word of the tutorial, but... It's also, well, it's also just nice because visually it actually adds some break up to it, so it doesn't feel so monotonous to read through it. Uh, it's very cool. And also, I'll just mention before we go on the... On the uh, on the DigitalOcean droplets, there's something else you can do that's extremely nice. That's it's not as new anymore, but it's new since I signed up with DigitalOcean because I've been a customer now for a while. You can also now attach more storage to your droplets using block storage up to uh, 16 terabytes, and it's all SSD. You can live resize the block storage from a gigabyte to 16 yeah, so, gig terabytes. Yeah, only only start with as much as you need, so you're not paying for more than you need, but you can always yeah. grow it when you start needing more. And go all the way up to 16 terabytes, and then just yeah resize it. Uh, it's yep. All the data is encrypted at rest, transmitted the droplets over isolated networks. It's highly available. It's replicated multiple times across different racks. I mean, it's really cool. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So uh, just got word from the back office. Do, 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 do. Uh, yes, there is a new episode of BSD Now. Turns out episode 168, The Post Show Show. <laughs> That's a great title because it's all about going to meet BSD. Meet BSD huh? yeah. <laughs> 
I got to check also, it out. And also, that's been out since before we started. I know. I was just, I'm joking around, you know? I'm like, there's uh, also, I also don't have an I IFB have with updates from the back office. That's also, I just right. was faking that part too. Sometimes, um, well, sometimes you can't DVD tell with me. Real, right? I keep, I keep throwing you. You can't tell with me. I keep you on your toes. Uh, so check it out. Episode 168. Get the, uh, I like, uh, it's just the summary is very simple. They're back mm-hmm. for Meet BSD. A good time was had by all. Lots to discuss. So let's jump in. <laughs> mm-hmm. You guys, you guys are eloquent. Now, really, that gra- that description it grabbed me and it really pulled me in. Uh, and it can pull you in too. You can get more Jude in your face right after we wrapped up. This is the halfway mark, so it's a good time to go get the HD version, episode one hundred and sixty-eight of the BSD Now program, and check it out. You're going to say something? No, yeah, I'm good. Okay. Well, you know what then? Let's go do the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or why not taking a uh, shot at, uh, you know, a thread? I don't know. Nobody seems to, but why not give it a shot? techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from Vanessa asking, what is the easiest way to set up a private media server? I essentially want to take all of our family's DVDs and home videos and pictures and put them up on a shared media server that we can access from, a, from our TV. Uh, what would be the best and cheapest way of going about this? Would there be a way to give access to people who are not on the land, like perhaps maybe my father? And what would be the best way to access these files? A Raspberry Pi running some sort of 10-foot interface software? Thanks in advance. Vanessa. Your thoughts, so there's a couple different ways there. Um, something like a FreeNAS with running Plex uh, make it very nice for accessing it on your TV. Um, although you need probably a different device to actually uh, run the Plex client, but that could be a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Um, and that works. And Plexes also have the ability to allow you to allow other Plexes to access your media. So you could have, you know, a second Raspberry Pi uh, at the second location and have it be allowed to access stuff. Um, mm. It's that one's hyper focused on, you know, video type stuff. Um, you could also do something like, you know, own cloud, next cloud. Uh, oh, yeah. Although that's a little less TV oriented than Plex. Plex is very much specifically about watching stuff on the TV. And if privacy is a chief consideration, uh, MB is an open source Plex. You could call it a clone. Like thing? Okay. Yeah, and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And okay. you can you can give people remote access, and it has apps, and you can watch it on a TV, like using a Roku or uh-huh. a Raspberry Pi with uh, mm-hmm. MB installed on it. So there's there are a lot of options. That's just a little more manual. Right. Um, yeah. My 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 home setup is kind of cheesy. It's literally just uh, a little nuck with uh, FreeBSD running like KDE, and it just opens up a sample share off my file server, and yeah, you browse through and click on the thing you want to watch, and it opens VLC. <laughs> I've been my you know uh, I find I that there's a lot of people use Plex. I know that I find there's not one bulletproof solution over the ages. So the 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 setup that I have found to be the most economical and long term sustainable for me is a dumb front end device that's like a standard media set top box that you could go buy at Best Buy. So that way, when it dies or something like that, you can go pick one up. So your Roku's, your Android TVs, those kinds of things. My current favorite is the Shield TV. It's a little expensive, but it has the best performance of all of them, and uh, it runs Kodi. Yeah. And MB and Plex very very well, and then I have right. that connecting like to a, a, Roku, uh, a Roku has advantages of a lot of the other things it can do. Yeah, but yep. it's yep. a little less control for you on how it does the yeah the media center type stuff. Yeah, and you know I have then I just have central storage, and over the years I've 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 
just use different front-end media interfaces to access that. So for a while it was Kodi, and then I oscillated to Plex, and I'm back on Kodi, and tried MB. There's a lot of, uh, by having everything centralized on a storage drive, and then having dumb front-ends that access that, it gives me sort of a flexibility when things don't work to just sort of change it up, and I can keep the endpoints cheap and easy, and that they're the things that are built for that 10-foot interface. Yeah, and, and the advantage with something like a FreeNAS is that you can have, say, Plex and uh, NetCloud set up on it. Yeah. And have look at know, the same like, files. This is uh, I use the Plex thing when I want to watch it on TV, but I I use the own cloud type thing when I want to you know pull up individual pictures on my laptop or something. The uh, now the Hail Mary configuration, Vanessa, if you're really up for the work, and if you're talking about using Raspberry Pis, you might be. Um, I love this setup. If you can do it, you get an Android TV. Any of them. We've reviewed several of them on last, even the cheap ones. Run Kodi. Runs great. And Kodi, which is a very, very good media front end, can use the back-end database of MB. So MB is responsible for all of the media indexing, the categorization, still generates the web front end, still works with apps so your father could get access to it. But on your front end television boxes on Raspberry Pis or on Android televisions, you're using Kodi. And that's super fast, shares the metadata, marks the watch status, all that kind of stuff. And it's all private. No cloud account required, no license required, nothing. All on your LAN. Yep. All right, so Scott writes in, speaking of LANs, he wants alerts. Hi, Chris and Alan. I'm currently in charge of my company's internal network, and I'm constantly trying to improve it. One of Oh, boy. Boy, do I hear this. One of the issues we have is our internet goes down because, well, Comcast. Then everybody comes running to me and says, what's wrong? What's going on? How come the internet's out? Before I even know, it's gone offline. So I have Zabbix monitoring servers, which actively pings all devices on the network to send them or send me an email when something's having a problem. But I think you could probably guess where this is heading. If the problem is the internet out itself, then how could I get the alert since it comes in over email? Is there any way I can send a message to my computer on the local internal network when something happens when it can't access the network? Also, by the way, satisfied IX Systems customer, Scott. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so this one, it depends. Uh, obviously, if you have email on the local network, then you're... Zabbix can still email you, but most likely if you're using something like a Gmail or something, then it can't. Um, your best bet there might actually be something like an SNMP trap. Uh, so the simple network management protocol allows, you know, you, you have a agent that you connect to the other machine and you get information like how busy CPU and all the stuff you're monitoring like in Zabbix. Uh, but then a trap is the ability for an SNMP server to send an alert to another place saying, hey, something happened right now. Rather than normally SNMP is like every five minutes you go and check that the CPU is okay. A trap is right the second I'm sending an alert to you saying, hey, thing is up. Um, there are a couple other ways. I don't know about Zavix, but with the Nginx, or, um, Nagios, I've configured it before so that uh, when a certain device went down, the icon changed with a bit of HTML that actually played a sound in my browser. <laughs> but that requires keeping that page open all the time, and maybe that doesn't make sense for you. Um, but yeah, there's a couple of different things you could do. I don't know. Do you have any well, ideas for a message? What do you think way? about setting up SMS? Is that a, is well, that, a, but no, normally for Zabbix, my access to SMS has been, uh, email to SMS gateway, okay. right? Like, unless you're going to have some kind of SMS device connected well, to that's the monitoring what I was, server. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Where yeah. are you going to get one of those? It's like I a little GSM device. Yeah. 
you know, most of the ones I've seen like that are for sending a lot of SMS messages and they're very expensive and the phone companies don't want you to use them because they're usually used for spamming, right? And- Chatroom is recommending this might be an option is PagerDuty, which is a, uh, it's just like a, it's a, it's a opera, it's an outsourced, uh, Platform. Yeah, but that's requiring the internet. I guess you can figure something on the internet so that if it doesn't get a ping from your Zavix uh, for five minutes, then it sets off an alert. But uh, Zavix may be, it may be the limited flexibility of Zavix, potentially. Well, it's not really so much Zavix. It's just like, yeah, how do you send an alert uh, when you have no internet? What about, uh, what about setting up a device like on a DigitalOcean droplet or somewhere else that's doing the reverse connection check? So it's checking, it's pinging his, his firewall. or right, if, if he's at the office, how is he going to get the alert? Well, because if it's a DigitalOcean droplet, it could do the SMS alert. So if he has something outside his network checking his I network. I suppose. The SMS, because, yeah, any other things, usually your phone is going to be still retrying the Wi-Fi because the True. Wi-Fi connects, it just doesn't work. It's that, a dead end. that can be a problem, too. And, and so it means that, you know, even like push notification stuff like PagerDuty might not actually work. He should probably just play with a local monitoring script on his desktop that checks the internet when the connection's down, it alerts him. Yeah. Uh, so you can do some kind of desktop app or something. Uh, or like you said, a DigitalOcean droplet is either doing a reverse connection check or is just a dead man switch, right? Uh, your Zabbix pings it every two minutes. If it goes six minutes or whatever without seeing a ping from your Zabbix, it fires off an SMS being like, hey, check the internet. So uh, RMH in the chat room is saying, hey, what about the Wahe uh, online sticks? They are LTE modem sticks that uh, you can use just for this kind of thing. And boy, they wow, they look insanely cheap, potentially. How cheap is that? So I don't know, because I, mean, I got to look at the different buying options, but it looks like it's... Uh. No, they're $100. Yeah, I don't know. It's not bad for alerting. Yeah, I suppose, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something to think about, but yeah, that's... Digital Ocean Droplet is $5 a month. Yeah, that might just be checking from the outside, or just doing a script on your desktop. Yeah, yeah, it could even just be some desktop-based thing. Here's what I like about the... Here's what I like about the Droplet, is then you... uh, So, uh, actually, geez, you just go back to that guide they have with smoke ping, you could actually have persistent data, I mean, continuous data about your connection. So even when you're not there, you're getting data about when it's going up and down. And that smoke ping DigitalOcean guide, smoke ping wouldn't alert you, but damn, is that not a great tool to get a benchmark of how your connection's been doing and other important spots. And also just like exactly when it went out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you'll right. get graphs you with Windows, data of how often it's which can out. be extremely valuable if you need if you need to message to management about a particular problem. When you show them a graph with a big gap, and you say from this hour to this hour we were down, and none of our offline backups could work, then management goes, "Oh shit, we should probably get that fixed." Yep. Maybe it's a different ISP. Maybe it's a backup LTE connection. I don't know. So look at that, Scott. Look at maybe setting that up. That might just try to flip this around, <clears> see if you can check from the outside. Now, how you're going to do that, you might have to think about that, but. Russ, now we transition to ZFS questions. Now, we do have a bunch more. Well, not a bunch more, but we do have several more emails that we didn't get to this week. I'll try to get them in next week's episode. Uh, but Russell writes in with our first ZFS question. He says, howdy again, guys. I know I emailed already, but I realized I really wanted to know the proper way to set up data sets in FreeNAS. When the semester ends, I plan to reset up my FreeNAS box and do it right. <laughs> I've been there. And I wanted the input. He says, currently I'm running a custom build that has a Xeon, 16 gigs of RAM, which is max for the MOBO, and a six Western Digital Red, two terabytes. He may look at upgrading them to four terabytes in the future. Uh, in a RAID Z2. 
Uh, he says, I think I run a single Z Volb, uh, but uh, many data sets. The way I want to try to set it up is a scheme like this. Multimedia with movies, music, etc. Time machine for user one, two, etc. Home for user one, two, etc. Each level is a data set, and I can set custom permissions, compression, etc. But the questions are, is this really a recommended setup? Should I ever deviate from the LZ4? Side note, is the uh, is it L, is it actually LZ4 or LZ4? I'm curious, by segregating the data types this way, uh, if there are advantages to actually be had, especially in compression. Do you want to start there? He has a second question. Yeah, so as far as compression goes, there's no advantages with the amount you divide up your data. Now, the advantage that I like, the reason I divide up more than just going movies is I break them up by year, is Whoa. when I do have to replicate stuff or move stuff around or say I'm going to move to bigger hard drives or something, having slightly easier to deal with chunks, right? Like I, I try to keep each chunk at maybe less than half a terabyte rather than having, you know, one movie's data set that's okay. like four terabytes. It's like, well, if I have to replicate that off to a different drive, I maybe don't have a spare four terabyte drive hanging around. Yeah, but totally. A bunch of sets of smaller chunks, like 500 gigs at a time, it's much easier to, you know, I'm going to put these three sets on that drive and these four sets on that drive and move them around or whatever. It just gives you a little bit more flexibility. The downside is if you want to move files from one data set to another data set, it's not just renaming them. It's actually copy all the data and then delete the old version, right? Because you're actually going to a separate file system. So you probably don't want to break it up too much. But, uh, you know, like uh, my TV shows are categorized by genre, Right. So I have like, you know, historic things like the BBC Robin Hood series or whatever versus, you know, uh, sci fi versus, uh, you know, a bunch of different categories so that and then some shows that are like really big, uh, I have an entire data set for them, you know, like Top Gear. Because mm. there's like 25 yeah. <laughs> I was thinking like it. Star Trek and just like, boom, <laughs> it's like yeah. a lot. of Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and things like that. And then to try to keep any one data set from getting too big such that it becomes hard to manage with replication. Because uh, maybe I decide I want to, you know, all the Star Trek stuff goes on this drive and all the stuff in this drive or if I'm going to back it up or replicate so that I can move stuff around in a little more reasonable chunk size. Um, but yes, uh, for question about deviating from LZ4, um, LZ4 will give you currently the best compression for the least amount of CPU usage. Uh, as the new Z standard eventually comes in, that will give you better compression uh, for slightly more CPU usage. So it'll never, uh, nothing is faster than LZ4, except for the old LZJB, but it's really slow. Um, but something like Z standard will give you better compression uh, without taking as long as something like GZ. Uh, for, say, movies and music, you might just decide to set compression to off for those data sets, specifically because um, you don't want to waste time trying to compress the blocks all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, LZ4 is fast enough, it's not a big penalty to do it, but for your, you know, if, if the data set is only ever going to contain compressed like MP4 and MKV files, there's really no point uh, wasting that bit of CPU, so you can just turn it off. Whereas your home directories and your time machine thing, probably full of all kinds of compressible stuff, and you should turn it on. Uh, for stuff like time machine and backups, uh, as he asked, asked in the second part of the question, should he consider something like gzip 7 or 8 or 9? You can. Uh, it Gzip can get really slow, though. Like with gzip 9, I think the top throughput you can get off a single CPU is like 20 megabytes a second. 
and all of a sudden, you know, that's that's kind of almost cripplingly slow. Whereas uh, maybe in uh, six months or so, when we have uh, Z standard implemented, you'd be able to get 100 megabytes a second while still getting the same compression you would have got from GZIP9, uh, but without having to, you know, run, end up running slower than your network can do. Hmm. Uh, so it depends. Uh, it, you know, if it's data that you're going to write once and and then use very infrequently, then uh, gzip is definitely something you should consider, maybe for the time machine stuff. For your home directories, LZF4 is probably best. Time machine, maybe you decide you want to go gzip. Uh, although you can definitely look and decide whether, you know, gzip versus gzip9, the compression saving is going to be very small, if any, and it's going to use a lot more CPU time and really limit your write speed. So maybe just standard gzip, which I think is gzip5, is probably, uh, you know, the difference between gzip5 and gzip9 as far as compression rate is going to be very minuscule, but the time the, the time difference and the amount of time it takes to write, uh, you know, 100 gigs of data will be substantial. Okay. So uh, that is really fascinating to hear how you break that down, Alan. <clears throat> Damn. All right. So are you ready for John's question about uh, converting to mirrored VDEVs? He says, hi, Alan and Chris. I have a few set and fast related questions about altering an existing setup. First of all, I have a desktop computer with two disk pools running the disk mirrored. I also have a free NAS with six disks in RAID Z2. I've been hoping to expand these setups and convert them to mirrored VDEVs. So first of all, concerning the desktop computer with two drives, I'm going to be upgrading it to four drives as I need more storage. In the past, I know you've always said that the mirrored VDEVs are usually the best setup for expandability. This is the setup I would like to convert to. It's not... It's, well, they say convert to, but if they have two drives and they're already mirrored, then they're already there, kind of. But anyway. He says, it's not possible to set up the mirrored VDEVs when you only have two disks, so I set up my pool as single disk mirrors. If I wanted to convert this setup to a mirrored VDEVs, is there a way to do this without creating an entirely new pool? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, I'm a little unclear with what they're saying, whether they actually have one VDEV that's two drives mirrored together, or if they have two striped drives with no redundancy. That's what it sounds like to me. Either way, you can upgrade this to, to your RAID 10 style. So if you have one VDEV that's two mirrors, so it, when you do zpool status, it'll say like mirror zero and then tabbed in under it, you'll see the two drives. Uh, then all you have to do is zpool add pool name mirror and your two new drives, and they'll show up as mirror dash one drive three and drive four. And you'll get the extra space. Now, the slight downside at this point is that it means um, the new drives are empty and the old drives are half full or more. And uh, when you write stuff, it'll be a little uneven, but it'll work. It'll be fine. Um, if you have striping where you just have two drives with no redundancy that are separate VDEVs, then you use zpool attach to attach you know, disk number three to disk number one. And that'll make it a mirror. And then you do the same thing with disk 4 to disk uh. 2, and that makes it a mirror. And now you have your two mirrors. Uh, in that case, uh, your data's already been split across the two drives, so the two mirrors will just copy from their their mated pair, and uh, your data's already split across the two. Uh, but mm. until that finishes, you're at risk of losing everything if any of the drives dies, which is bad. Uh, so uh, anyway, it sounds like they have... Uh, a setup of two mirror drives, and yeah, if you just zpool add a second mirror set, then you'll have uh, your mirror sets, and you'll be all good. Uh, for the RAID Z2, it's slightly more complicated. So that's the second part. Like he's he's got a free NAS, 
Uh, and he said, what would be the easiest way to convert my six-disc RAID Z2 into a mirrored VDEVs? Luckily, I'm using, I'm only using 10 terabytes of the 22 available on my existing pool, so I was thinking I could do the same thing as on the desktop and buy two six-terabyte hard drives, and then I could make a two-disc VDEV pool and send my entire FreeNAS pool there. From there, I could attach the rest of the drives as VDEV mirrors. Is there an easy way to do all this? Thanks for the great show. I've learned a lot from TechSnap. Look forward to it every week. John. So on that second part there, he's looking for mm -hmm. an easier way than uh, <clears throat> his current approach. He's looking to also potentially uh, essentially do the same thing as on the desktop um, and make a two-disc VDEV pool and then yeah, send so, all data there. Yeah, so with his six-disc uh, RAID Z2, his only option for doing it in place is to add six more drives and create a second RAID Z2 and, and then, you know, it basically stripes across those two RAID Z2s. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so to convert to mirrors, he basically needs to get the data off and create a new file system. Uh, so he's talked a little bit about buying two six terabyte drives, uh, which would, I guess, hold his 10 terabytes of data in total. Uh, and this is, you know, for me, this is where it kind of came in handy to have my data split up into smaller chunks, like we were talking about in the previous question, is that I was going from a four drive uh, I think I went from a four drive RAID Z2 to a six drive. And basically I did that by taking the two new drives and doing ZFS replication to move data to the two new drives uh, that were actually both of those were completely separate Z pools at the time. Um, because I had broken it up into chunks so that I could just, you know, arrange the chunks like Tetris blocks <laughs> to fit them on across the two drives, right? Just, you know take the two biggest things, one to each drive, and keep doing that, and then even it out. Uh, and then created the new pool and then sent the data back, uh, you know, and when I had all six drives. Uh, so, yeah, uh, one option would be uh, take your two new six-terabyte drives, uh, set them up as either one pool striped, or probably. Uh, uh, so set them up as not mirrors, as two single-drive VDEVs. Uh, send all your data over, and then attach, uh, you know, two more six terabyte drives, one to each of them, to make them into mirrors. Uh, but, you know, then you're like, what are you going to do with your leftover drives? Now you could attach the rest of your leftover drives as different sized uh, mirror things and, and mm -hmm. keep using them. That would work. Uh, but at that point, you're buying six new six terabyte drives, which, by the sounds of it, is kind of not what you were looking to do. Mm -hmm. But it is a possibility. I don't know how many drives you can fit in the machine. But you take your two uh, sets of six terabyte drives and then add all your old drives as in pairs until you uh, finish off the available uh, slots in your machine. But there's no way to in place uh, do uh, RAID Z2 and switch it over to mirrors. You have to basically get all the data off and do it and make a fresh pool. Uh, but you can kind of do that by uh, using those six terabyte drives. Depending on how you do it, you can move all the data to the two six terabyte drives and then rebuild the original drives in as mirror sets and then move the data back and then use your two six terabyte drives for something else or just add them to the end or whatever. But it, it really depends what you want to do. And the biggest thing is, you know, as you're doing that, in the point between when you have finished copying all the data to the six terabyte drives and erased it off the original drives and before it's all synced up in the end, uh, if one of the six terabyte drives gives out, then all your data is gone. And there goes six terabytes of your data, or 12 terabytes, 10, I guess you had 10 terabytes of data in total. And you really don't want that to happen either. <clears throat> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, what it, Our last ZFS question of the day comes from Rob. He says, hey, Alan and Chris, love the show. I have a couple of questions about ZFS and secure hard drive disposal. Probably something we should all think about. Recently, one of the spinning rust hard drives in my FreeNAS RAID Z1 failed. I swapped it out which is pretty painless, but now I'm left with the task of disposing of the old drive. My plan was attached to one of my <clears throat> Linux boxes <clears throat> and wipe it clean with zeros or random data. But the drive is so far gone that I hear that the telltale just click, click, click of a death of the death of a drive when I power it up, and so, of course, the OS won't write to it. If I were to dispose of the drive as is and someone managed to reconstruct it later, could they extract any usable data from a single ZFS drive? How do you dispose of failed drives? I'd rather not take a hammer to it. Do any hard drive manufacturers provide a physical kill switch? I'd gladly pay a little more for such a feature if it exists. Thanks, Rob. Right. So, yes, someone could, say, take the platters out of it and put it into uh, the same model of drive that had working motor and electronics and so on and get your data. Now, uh, being, So if it's part know, of a RAID, there's still actual files on there? Well, there are chunks of files. Okay. You know, so you know, if it if it's a four kilobyte file, then it was written as one sector, and the whole file is readable. Uh, okay. Now you might not necessarily know the file name and so on, but so there'll be missing pieces and so on. But there's probably enough on there that somebody could get stuff that you wouldn't want them to do. This is one of the reasons why you can consider hard drive encryption, right? If you're using Geli to encrypt all the data from ZFS before it gets written to the drive, then as long as the drive, nobody has the key to decrypt it, all the data on the drive is gibberish, and you can just dispose of it, you know, unsafely, right? It's just electronic recycling or whatever, right? You don't just throw drives in the garbage. They need to be recycled properly. But, because, uh, yes, the, the, the thing is that when drives fail, you are not always can you actually just safely overwrite them. And so that's where this drive uh, scrambling stuff with it, the encryption can come in handy. Uh, so at this point, really, you you know, why, why don't you want to take a hammer to the hard drive? Usually, usually the bigger question at these times is if you're sending the drive back for warranty, right? You only get a free replacement if you send them the defective drive. That's when it gets uh, more complicated. And that's where the encryption comes in as an option because that way, uh, you know, they get a drive. They can see that it goes click, click and doesn't work. But they, uh, you know, if they do try to, they can't get any data off the drive. Uh, so that's probably your best option. Uh, beside that, yes. You know, hammer or taking to some place that puts it through one of those like metal wood chippers. <laughs> it's always fun to watch, anyway. Sure is. <laughs> Will it blend? Um, all right, Rob. But so yeah, then... there's not really a way to do a physical kill switch in a drive because the data is on the platter. So mm -hmm. other than destroying and if the motor the platter, dies, it can't yeah. do anything to it. This, this, this is why Google's process <laughs> involves like driving a, a piston like through the middle of the drive and bending everything out of shape and mm -hmm. and then taking the crushed up bits and putting them through the equivalent of a wood chipper. <laughs> So it sounds uh, like though, if the, the government contracts for it sounds storing like, data, it sounds like if there is data on there, it's it's in bits and pieces most likely. Yes. Yeah, so there's not that great of a chance of them constructing anything bigger. Uh, smaller things, like a small file, the whole file could be in, in one chunk on one any one of the drives in a RAID. Uh, but once you get to bigger files, like if you have you know a, a ten minute video on your drive, only you know one fifth or one sixth or depending on how many drives you had in your array is actually on that one drive and so you know it might not be enough to put it back together but you know maybe it is it's hard to say uh you know that's why if you're worried about it uh you can set up you know gelly disk encryption and encrypt everything before it goes on the actual physical drive and that way all you have to do is destroy the key or just not send not dispose of the key with the drive 
And then anybody without the key can't read anything other than gibberish off the drive. Or invest in a really, really, really high-end wood chipper. And well, not put, a wood chipper. You need a, I know. a metal compactor. I, I know. <laughs> Something that will shoot sparks out. So uh, if you have a question for us, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click contact, and choose TextNet from the dropdown, and send in your question, and we'll try to get answered in uh, next week's episode of TechSnap, episode 294. But with the emails all done for this week, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. We still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show is all done. And some of these links came from our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, which I'm pretty sure, for example, this first story did. It's uh, all over the internet this week, though. The iPhone is reportedly sending calls, at least the logs of the calls, to Apple servers, even if you have iCloud backup turned off. And this is... uh, Seems like this is the kind of thing Apple purposely wouldn't want because of something that, say, the FBI would try to get from them. Yeah. It looks like it might be related to iOS 10's new call kit support, which allows for things like uh, call spam blocking and, and things like that. I'm not sure. I uh, suppose, yes. So I think even Google has a thing for this so that when they see a whole bunch of people getting a call from the same spoofed number or whatever, and all of them you know, are annoyed by the call, they can then block it for people. Which, you know, it'd be very good. And uh, actually, in Canada, we just passed a law saying that the phone companies have three months to figure out how to block these calls so that we don't have to deal with them. That's nice. I guess it looks Uh, like the synced data contains full information, including call duration from uh, both parties uh, and both parties, the numbers that were both parties of the call. Um, And uh, they were able to extract information going back as far as four months. But, you know, the the government already has that information, so I I don't suppose it's that... Apple has to be that concerned about the government wanting Apple's copy of it. So it looks like the government's already getting this from the phone companies. Uh, but personally, yeah, maybe you don't want Google yeah. to, uh, Apple to know this, and it definitely should be an opt-in feature, not an opt-out feature. Yeah. And in particular, it seems like turning off iCloud backup is if that was supposed to opt you out of it, then this is a big deal. I don't know why I, I don't know why iCloud backup would have anything to do with it either. Yeah. Somebody uh, else speculates that what it also is is. Uh, if you have multiple new Apple devices, like a laptop and an iPad and a phone, when you get a phone call, they all ring. And I think iCloud initiates the ringing on the other devices from the from like a push notification like type trigger. And if perhaps you answer. How does that work? Well, it, it, it then it tells the other devices you've answered. So when you answer it, the other devices within right, about like, a second it, stop does ringing. It, like, does your phone proxy the call? To the other device? Or uh, when you use the MacBook, yes, I think so. I don't know exactly. Yeah, I guess it does. Yeah, it's like I want to answer that essentially, it treats the other devices as Bluetooth headsets. Uh, I guess. I, I don't use it, so I don't know. But yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move on. Anyways, so that's going on, and I'm sure we'll probably hear more about that. Uh, and, this next yeah, so one. This article uh, is from the Spectator. It's more. If you remember, we talked about Brian Krebs's thing about you know the cyber criminals being able to silence his speech by taking out his website. Uh, And this kind of builds on that theme a bit more by saying, you know, without internet security, free speech won't matter because if somebody doesn't like what you're saying, then they can just silence you by knocking you off the internet. Yeah, it's true. Uh, This is interesting. IBM is up to uh, some new tricks. They've, they've set up like a real time hacking center where you can go there and simulate hacking. It's a full fledged cybersecurity war room where they can put clients in the middle of a cyber threat. So not just 
like the penetration testing and pretending like you're, but like the actual responding to a cyber threat and let them experience what it's like to take and defend against malware, APTs, DDoSs, and many other tasks. Boy, how do you? It's, it's, it, that sounds like it's a bunch Somehow of hype. Somehow, a hundred and was it one hundred fifty-three thousand square foot building doesn't seem like how you defend against a DOS attack. But okay. Yeah, because you know I don't picture a lot of companies where they have these operations room full of monitors where they sit down during a it really cyber attack. Only happens in movies. Yeah, but uh, IBM's. But you know, uh, network operation centers kind of look like that. And but you I know suppose, maybe like, let's say they got thirty-six iMac workstations. Uh, they got a twenty-four foot by six foot LCD display. Uh, they have cloud and IoT and server and workstation environments for the mock company to make it all seem real, except yeah. for that whole excessive display and where the part where they spent money on stuff. See, that's not what they need to do is like a, a cheap thrown together solution that hasn't gotten any support from upper management, and then you'd have a simulator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So this is kind of interesting. A little demystification here of the iDevices NVMe uh, NAND storage. That uh, Apple's yeah, putting their so, new device. Uh, Apple's using basically a custom thing for the NVMe storage in the new uh, Mac laptops or whatever, and uh, somebody had the money to be able to tear theirs apart and uh, wow, try to figure out how it works. So they're building their own disks. Uh, well, Apple's using something kind sure. of custom in the the laptop, which kind of makes sense. They're going to buy in enough volume that it makes sense. Also, makes it's, it's interesting to think about uh, in context of their new file system they, that they're working on some beta right now, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Apple file system or whatever they're calling it. Yep. So this is a bummer. The Snoopers Charter, which we've talked about before on this show, uh, is set to become law. And uh, this is I mean, some people are. I well, saw, this is in the UK. Yes, yes. Uh, I saw some um, some headlines that um, say that it's like the it's the most pervasive spying bill ever passed in a democracy. I mean, people seem to. That's be, the one. I, the headline I saw as well. Yeah. So this is the Investigative Powers <laughs> Bill. It's been passed by both the House of Parliament, uh, and once it receives royal assent, it becomes law. I like the term royal assent. That's badass. Yep. Oh, we don't have that here in the States. Yeah. We have it, just goes to, it just goes to Obama's desk. That's not, that's not, no, we don't call it royal assent. So what's this? Uh, Tesco's bank is blaming systematic, so- sophisticated attack. A systemic. No, a systematic. Mm-hmm. So, sophist- a sophisticated attack. Easy for me to say. For recent yeah. Uh, losses. Yeah. So apparently uh, 20,000 accounts uh, had all their money taken. Oh, my God. Uh, and the bank's like, uh, rain. And it's gone. Yeah. It's like the, the bank was owned in such a way that they didn't get, you know, they, did, they didn't do this by breaking into one person's internet banking or something. They broke into the bank and just drained 20,000 accounts. Firefox users are hearing the good news about Focus today. Firefox's new web browser. It's easy to use. It's built for privacy. Uh, and it's only available for iOS. But if you're an iOS user, you can go get Firefox Focus. I, I think it's an, there an, another take like, on... What, what's special about it? Well, it's... Like, I, I use Firefox for Android, and I'm happy with it. I believe... I could be wrong on this, but I believe it is in private mode out of the box. And it blocks trackers by default from all around the web. And it blocks certain it cookies by default. odd to make iOS the first target for that, but okay. They've been trying to crack iOS for a while, I think. Uh, I suppose. You know, they really seem well, like they... I guess for a long time, Apple had the rule in its uh, Apple Store thing that says you couldn't put open source software in there, right? I know v- VLC got kicked out for a while, even. 
this is kind of an interesting thing. Firefox Focus, even when you're not using it as your primary browser, can continue to operate as uh, the content blocker for Safari, because this is an API that Apple built into iOS 10. Mm-hmm. So you can actually use the tracking protection of Firefox Focus in Safari. So you can block ad trackers, analytic trackers, social trackers, uh, and you can just turn on the I Safari the- integration with a, with a checkbox. That's kind of cool. confusing me is why is it called focus? Like I can understand a focus mode on the desktop, but that reduced distractions. They're not, no, they're not talking about reduced. Yeah, that's what I thought yeah. too. Yeah, it's just a little it's weird. It's for times when you don't want to leave a record on your phone. Yeah, I would have called that. You know, porn mode, Firefox, private or something. I mean, yeah, focus makes this sound like because then you think, well, now I'm thinking about when I think about private mode, the joke like, is it's I, porn I, mode, and then I think like focus is like I'm focusing on porn. Like where are they going for here? It's weird messaging. Like, yeah, so, so I had a. I use a desktop app called Rescue Time that logs where I spend my time. Yeah. I don't use it so much anymore, but I did a lot when I was doing consulting because it was how I could easily, like, it would look at my, when I'm editing source code or whatever, you know, which file I was editing and keep track of how long I spent on each one. And then I could break it down by directory and be like, all right, I spent X hours on this client, X hours on that client, and so on. Uh, and it had a focus mode where it would, like, any program you marked as being not productive, it would just, you know, minimize it for you. It wouldn't let you use it. Wow. It's like focus mode for the next 30 minutes. You could only use programs you marked as productive. Hmm. Yeah. I'm reading about what I was picturing. And I'm like, what? Like there's Firefox has like reading mode and so on. And and I can see how that may, you know, especially if they can get rid of ads and stuff, but it does. Yeah. Focus seems like a weird name. for It's, it's headline. It's uh, like its main, like key feature too, is that at the, at the top in the URL bar, there's an erase button to immediately erase your history. Yeah. So, and uh, I, I, now their example makes a little more sense where they're Yahoo searching for engagement rings. And yeah. obviously you don't want the person, the other half of the relationship to know you're searching for that. Like on a shared it's iPad, I could surprise. definitely see that too. Like yeah. you got like a family room iPad. the wrong name. I would have called it Firefox Ghost or something. I don't know. Yeah, sure, sure. How about this next roundup story? Office Depot is allegedly diagnosing computers with non-existent viruses just to make sure they get those sales numbers. Yeah, well, this is, yeah. This so is my, hey, a local TV station pushing, reported this in yeah. Seattle here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Office Depot is pushing the, the people that work at their little computer fix-it centers uh, to sell more of their antivirus solutions and so on. And so the TV station bought six brand new computers and brought them in, and then they were told they had viruses. Oh, they sent in Jesse. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Of course, a couple of things. Uh, a, how did these guys not notice it was a brand new computer with nothing on it? Uh, you know, that, and, and secondly, it's like, well, a brand new computer with nothing on it? Probably does contain a bunch of malware. Well, I guess it depends right? on what your definition the is, right? Where that comes with, well, you is know, it, is it software that tracks your usage? Because that's, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. So, a little bit of both. But basically, the TV station talked to somebody who didn't work at Office Depot, and they're like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with those computers. I'm going to see if I can grab this video right now. That's funny. That's great. I love it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay. Well, we'll have a link in the show notes if you guys want to watch that video. It's pretty cool. Uh, how about this? You ready for this one? spray-on conductive concrete that will shield you all from the impending EMP attack. Yeah? So you spray concrete onto a thing and then yep. it's conductive? You don't got to build a Faraday cage? Right. The EMP-proof what concrete has actually been... lightning? A... Well, okay. What happens to the thing inside it? Inside this concrete, if it gets hit by lightning. You know what's ironic, though? I guess maybe not ironic, but it's interesting that they created this to melt snow. They wanted self-warming concrete that could melt ice and snow with safe, low-level electrical current. 
and they were working on a way to build sulfur ro safer roads and bridges so you could have like bridges that would warm up. Yep, uh, like uh, this, the college I went to, there they had these patio stones across at the whole front entrance, and there was some kind of heating underneath them. I think it was just hot water and pipes, though. Uh, and so, yeah, they would never have snow on them because it would melt it. It's got an iron ore in it with magnetic properties that allow to soak up radiation, like sunlight and stuff. This is so cool, and it happens to also block EMPs. You know, the effects of an EMP. Mm -hmm. uh, there you go. There you go. So, yes, the FBI... This story's a bit old, but... Yeah. Uh, this is probably re before the election. Yes, the FBI can review 650,000 emails in eight days. Yeah. Probably called computers. So, you know, when when this thing came out, when they it was like Anthony, Anthony Weiner's emails, and they were trying to cross-reference them with the Hillary Clinton ones or whatever... Uh, and it's like, well, how could they review 650,000 emails in only eight days? I'm like, well, I could have done it in one. <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? First, they do a search and filter out, you know, look, standard email search of uh, from to CCBCC, anything that mentions Clinton in it, right? So then that gets rid of most of the emails because obviously being not Clinton's email, most of the emails were not uh, from or to Clinton. But once they get down to that many, each email contains a unique ID when it's sent. Right, this is how your email client can do threading. Right, I don't know if most people do that in their email client, but I do. So that when a reply to an email shows up, you know, as a uh, underneath the original email, right? It's, or like Google does it, even Gmail, right? People are familiar with the threading, right? Um, it does this by the message ID. So all they had to do was have a database of all the message IDs of the emails they looked at before when they got the copy from Clinton's hard drive or whatever, and compare it check all the email IDs uh, of these new emails that after they eliminate all the ones that don't involve Clinton. And it's like, oh, this message ID, we've seen it before. We've already read this email. We don't even have to look at it. And eliminate most emails that way. And now you're down to just like 100 emails that you haven't seen before. And then you divide those up between a couple of people and you read them and it doesn't take eight days. Right? Mm -hmm. Computers, they're good at doing things. <laughs> Uh, very much. So this is sort of a disturbing story. This budget... Well, this one this one uh, kind of connects back to the Apple one. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, on this one, sending text messages to China from uh, users on these Android phones. Every, t every 72 hours, full text message archives are sent to Chinese servers. Also, uh, call logs and location. A certain really low-end, like really inexpensive Android phones. Yeah, and the and company's I'm guessing called... it's like, oh, we can sell you this phone cheaper because we were getting paid by... The company right. that's getting all your text messages. They call it Add Up, uh, and they apparently bake it into the firmware for some of these phones. Yeah, so we can say it's, it's basically the crap where your laptop comes with, but uh, on, on your phone, and it's stealing your text messages. Supposedly, Wahe and ZTE and others have worked with them uh, before, but say they so haven't they shipped that software. from Google. What did Google actually say? Oh, they did where? Well, it's, it says update added statement from Google, oh, but yeah. I don't see what the statement is. No, I'll, I'll skim it real quick to see if I yeah. can. A Google spokesperson said the company was not aware of the issue until it was contacted by uh, CryptoWire, the people that discovered it. Well, that's... Not as useful. Yes, but... <laughs> yeah, anyway. All right, lawmakers are pondering perhaps a regulatory remedy for Internet of Terrible Security. Yep. Uh, so Schneier thinks that uh, what they need is a, an agency to regulate it. Uh, interestingly, Underwriters Laboratories, which is the ones that you know make sure that the, the lamp you buy isn't going to short out and burn your house down, apparently they've uh, been working on having some kind of IoT thing since April of this year. Mm. But, you know, 
in a lot of these cases, it's, it's pretty hard to know what to check for. Like, we can make a list of all the bad things we've ever seen and check for them. But we never know how, you know, people are never going to run out of new ways to do stupid things. Looks like it's Representative Walden of Oregon. If uh, if that's uh, up your alley and it's in your area, maybe work with him. Perhaps. Email him. We'll contact him. Uh, you know, it can be done very badly. Just, you know, it can make things worse. Yes, that's what I'm worried about. It can make things better, so yep. it's hard to say. Yeah, exactly. That's why we need some of the audience uh, to get in there and make sure it doesn't get screwed up. It's all on you. Qualcomm is jumping on the bug bounty bandwagon with $15,000 for bashing blips. That's what the headline says. Uh, what do you think of this about a hardware vendor getting in on a bug bounty program? Well, also uh, we've seen quite a few, uh, you know, bug bounty problems with or bugs in the Qualcomm yeah, bit of the phone that's not running Linux. Yep, yep, so. yep, yep. Uh, and Hacker One again, another another uh, one for Hacker One that is just continuing. Yeah. Well, to... it seems like you know they know how to run a bug bounty program, and rather than setting up all the infrastructure yourself to do it yourself, you could just be like, "Hey, mm-hmm. let them do it." Mm-hmm. Uh, just a special security advisory for those of you out there running KDE Neon. You need to reload if you really want to be fully secure. There, the package archive used by KDE Neon was incorrectly configured, allowing anyone to upload packages to it. There's no reason to think that anyone actually did that, but as a precaution... So it doesn't even have logs? <laughs> well, as a precaution, they've emptied the archives, removed the ISOs built before the state, and rebuilt everything, and the ISOs have been regenerated, so you should install from those. Yep. Just as a precaution. The only way to know for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, that is the roundup. So, There's a story whoops. you would have... Don't, don't make the repos publicly writable. There's that. If, you'd li- if there was a story you wish we... Did they we... not sign their packages? I think they do. That's what I was missed. That's what I was kind of confused about. But I guess about. if they allow anybody to upload, they would then sign perhaps, anybody's uploaded. Perhaps. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. In, in FreeBSD, the key server sits over there, and the package builder is over there. I generally and, don't. Know. I generally don't recommend. I was just. I didn't pr- properly articulate this recently on Unplugged, but I was trying to say, hey, I think KDE Neon is great, but you might might not want to make your daily driver simply because it's new. You know, it's only been but, around well, for half know, a year. It, it's, it's, the point of it is to show off new stuff and yes. try stuff. Yes. Yeah, it's like a beta, basically. A rolling yeah, beta, I mean, they I try guess, to make but... it usable, and I, I think they'll get there for sure, but it just seems like when something's new, you should give a little time to bake before you make it your daily driver. But uh, it is a nice way to try it out, and uh, if you're using it, you should probably you should probably reload. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, if there was a story you wish we were talking about this week, you could try to submit it to our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. The show is live on Thursdays, 1 p.m. Pacific. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to uh, get it converted to your local time. I was just thinking, I, I don't think we have any doubles coming up anytime soon, so we're, we're back to our regular schedule for a while. Uh, so you can get that all uh, subscribed and whatnot, so you get uh, over here and join us live in the chat room and hang out with us and help us pick our titles. And if you can't make it live, well, then you're in the majority. Don't feel bad about it. We make it all available over at jupiterbroadcasting.com, and you can subscribe via RSS and get a new episode every time it comes out. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week.